covering Pulp Fiction with very special guest, Rebecca Johnson. Enjoy the episode. What's that new theme music you hear? That's right, folks. Welcome back to Travolting. To Travolting. Yeah, with our brand new theme song by our longtime composer and longtime friend, Michael Van Bodegum Smith. Entering into era number two. The A-list era. Uh, We've already got a name for it? Yeah, the A-list era. Did we? We already talked about this in the beginnings era yeah, episode, didn't we? I think so. It's the beginnings era, the A-list era, and then the decline era. Oh, you thought of a name for the third one, yeah. too, the decline yeah, era. I mean, spoiler alert for everyone listening. Well, it's also like, we we, ha- we talked about this in the last episode, how difficult it is to like pinpoint the arc of each era because it's so up and down. Yes. Because, yeah, like his first era, sure, in the 70s, it was a big rise, big fall in the 80s, and then a slight uptick in the 90s. Yes, and then down again. And then down again. My, my contention for the three eras is that the first one, I mean, obviously the second one begins with Pulp Fiction because that's his career revival. Mm-hmm. And it go, A-list era goes until he's not getting A-list parts again. Even after Battlefield, we're going to talk about this, but even after Battlefield Earth, he's still getting A-list parts just in bad movies. Yeah. Like, they're well-budgeted movies with other big stars, and then they're all just bad. What do you think our special guest, uh, Becca Johnson, thinks about this? Yeah. Well, I said so in the intro. We're joined by very special guest, Rebecca Johnson. Yeah, I wasn't sure when I can chime in yet. (laughs) I'm just looking over my notes and laughing at my own jokes. Chime in with Yeah. Uh, We are joined by our longtime graphic designer, uh, longtime friend, uh, short-time girlfriend. (laughs) Kidding. Whoa, 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 whoa there, buddy. (laughs) Part, to, yeah, part-time girlfriend, uh, full-time graphic designer, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Rebecca Johnson. Ooh. Welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah. I hope you guys like the redesign. Yeah, this has been a long time coming. Uh, you folks can take a gander at your Spotify's and your uh, Apple Podcasts and your YouTubes right now. Wherever you're yeah. listening. And see your uh, the new uh, logo art that Becca's designed for us for this new era. It's looking great. Yeah, That's looking it. awesome. Hell yeah. yeah. Very excited. Cool. And what better way to ring in this new era than with one of arguably the most influential films of the past 30 years, possibly of all time. This movie changed the paradigm in Hollywood, kind of ushered in the, uh, you know, the indie boom of the 90s, made Miramax a real player, uh, brought Harvey Weinstein to a major success. And aren't we glad? Yeah, it's the the best thing that ever happened to Hollywood. Uh, He's doing great, the last I heard. (laughs) 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're covering uh, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction today. Did you hear that, Jeff? What? That ding noise? I did not. (laughs) So that ding noise that the audience is going to be hearing, uh, something that we're going to address here is... There are a lot of podcasts talking about Pulp Fiction. There are a lot of podcasts where specifically two white dudes talk about Pulp Fiction. Just and a couple of dudes. <laughs> being dudes. A couple of dudes talking about Masterpiece Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. <laughs> oh, there's the sound again. So for our audience, we don't want to make this another like two film school white dudes who are douchingly talking about Pulp Fiction because it's not a perfect movie. Yeah, it's not a perfect movie. It's a very good movie. But it's a very good movie. But we are going to be honest about it. Yes. And we're going to try not to be your everyday basically, podcast about this it. podcast is going to be like a Quentin Tarantino movie. And so every time... We're, we're going to be promising... We're going to be promising you that we're going to do something different. But then we're going to kind of just 
hand you a pastiche of other things that's going to be very good, but it's kind of still in the original ballpark of what we said it wasn't going to be. And that's not a slight to Quentin Tarantino. What he does, he does very well. There's another ding. So my point with that ding <laughs> is uh, whenever we say something that's remotely in the ballpark of douchey film school white dude talk, we're going to have this little ding noise here that we can't hear because I'm putting these dings in in post-production. Well, don't spoil it. Don't. You just blew away the bit. Well, I'm just saying. What no, what really is happening is that we uh, we brought Mario in uh, for a guest spot oh, this for God's week. It's a me. Um, and he's going to hit his little like brick wall above him every time we say something it's basically a sound effect to, that you guys recognize that you're falling into film douchery because this is inevitable it is tarantino yes you know yeah. it's gonna happen it's gonna happen and so we're yeah. just gonna be upfront about it when those moments come you know what mm-hmm. audiences love what do audiences they love, love five minute discussions of the bit we're gonna do uh taking away all the mystique of the bit I think Jeff is upset that you mentioned. Oh no, it. I think I think I think Jeff is really upset. <laughs> I mean, you have to give the audience the context for the bit. Yeah. Otherwise, then they're just not gonna. They have to like spend half the episode guessing what is that dinging noise, and then I think the sound effect should be Sam Jackson say, "Does he look like a bitch?" <laughs> <laughs> or just him saying, "What <laughs> English motherfucker? Do you speak it? <laughs> Does he look like a bitch? What?" That, that that's my biggest thing i'll say right before we start is the fact that i do not like sam jackson before mm. this i did not like sam jackson after this i've i've elaborated that i only like sam jackson <laughs> in pulp fiction and hateful eight you like him in that oh and hateful eight i think tarantino does does right by sam jackson sometimes i think his character in django unchained is like one of my least favorite characters in film ever uh so Sam Jackson's on a spectrum for me, but he did it so well in this movie that uh, he may have he may have gained back my vote. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is a Sam Jackson powerhouse movie. Oh yeah, John Travolta is great, but mm. Sam Jackson has more big moments. Th- this movie revitalized Travolta's career, but it turned Sam Jackson into a pop culture icon. Oh yeah, Hands every Absolutely. Sam Jackson performance after this movie is some way. A reflection on Pulp Fiction. And I mean, that is my biggest quarrel. Mm-hmm. But I mean, kudos for Sam Jackson for just playing Pulp Fiction in every movie in some variation or some corrupted version of it. Because this dude, you know, can just sit back, do his thing, and just be like the baddest motherfucker. Mm-hmm. It, and that's my problem with like Nick Fury. That's my problem with like snakes on a plane. Like it's a, <laughs> it's the persona of Sam Jackson that that just perpetuates yeah. it because he's got real acting chops and i feel like only tarantino has really cracked that which is why i love him probably the most in unbreakable oh he's so good in oh i have not seen that because he's not sam l jackson in that movie mm, noted he's elijah price he is elijah price <laughs> he is not like first name mr last, last name well, glass. <laughs> now you're telling me to watch not only a Sam Jackson movie, but M. Night Shyamalan, who I also despise. Unbreakable is one of his good ones. It's one of his good ones. Yeah. Maybe only good one? That's his, all I heard you say. His popularly, uh, like, very accessibly named trilogy, the East Rail 177 oh. <laughs> trilogy. <laughs> no. Uh, the, um, you would think it would be called the Unbreakable trilogy, but it's actually called the East Rail 177 trilogy. Uh, because I, I rest my case. Both the, uh, both the inciting incidences of Split and Unbreakable take place on the same train. Yeah. Uh, so. Oh, wait, that's kind of dope. Yeah, the East Rail 177. Wait, what was the inciting incident for Split? 
I mean, spoiler for Split, Glass, and Unbreakable. Uh, but the train David Dunn is on at the beginning of Unbreakable when he gets into. Wait, no, I haven't seen this. You're I haven't not. seen Unbreakable. Mm-hmm. I just said that like seconds ago. I know the I know the 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 oh. inciting incident for Unbreakable, but how does the train fit in for uh, Split? Uh, a certain character's father is on the same train. Uh oh. And that's why he has the split person. Uh, uh got it. Okay. He never overcame his his father's. I'm not gonna death. have another M Night Shyamalan movie spoiled for me. I had Sixth Sense spoiled for me. Yeah. I'm actually gonna talk a fair bit about the Sixth article. Sense today. Uh, oh really? No, because I think Bruce Will. I think oh, there's some Bruce, Bruce Willis. Willis in this that very much equates with that. Fair enough. To lay uh, the groundwork for our Pulp Fiction talk, though, because something that obviously should be addressed is this is none of our first time views, is it? Yes. No. Yes, it is. For her. It was for her. Yes. I've only ever okay. seen. I've only seen through the "Does he look like a bitch?" scene, Ezekiel twenty five seventeen scene. I have not seen past that. Yeah. Wow. So much so that I did not know Bruce Willis was in this movie. Wow. So this is a really interesting dynamic to have on here. This is my second um, time watching this. Oh. I think it's probably my third or fourth. Yeah. Um, it's a movie I revisit every few years. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is, it's so influential and it's just such an entertaining movie to watch. Yeah. I genuinely hadn't seen it at all. So much so that I thought the whole like Royale with cheese was in the middle of the movie. <laughs> Which it, technically in the timeline, yes. It technically but is in the middle. Of the it movie. is technically in the middle, kind of. <laughs> uh, nonlinear narrative. Uh, doing. <laughs> so, yeah. okay. But so, yeah, you're right, Jeff. This is a very interesting dynamic um, for going into talking about it. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I did some research. How uh, much research? I actually did. This is the first time. Uh, this, whoopsie. Oh. This is the first time. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time on this podcast I've been able to, uh, you know, back to my high school routes of, you know, you need five internet sources and one book source. I was actually able to cite a book for this episode. Uh, it's I almost re- like wow. Pulp Fiction has been covered in a, a lot, lot of ways. It's right. Now, uh, you know, and after the past decade of movies where there's no information about and about the making of them whatsoever. Which, yeah, we've done there's that like a lot. one IMDb trivia thing about like, look who's talking to and that's it. Yeah. Hmm. Um, it was really exciting for me to have another movie we could talk about where I could really dig in and like read the history of it. I'm honestly excited for that portion of the podcast. Yes. Are we getting into it now or is it? Uh, that's what we're about to get right into let's get into that um but i was able to hit the book it's here right there uh down in dirty pictures by peter biskind uh i shout out looking at it right now i shout out for anyone who is interested in the 90s era of independent cinema uh it's a really good book as is the same authors um oh my god what's it called easy riders raging bulls about the new Hollywood movement in the 70s great books if you're interested in the topic that's a plug just shouting out my source for a lot of this information but uh, I think we'll get right into it. You ready to uh, dive into some history, Stuart? I'm ready to dive into some history. You ready some to dive into some history, Becca? Oh, yeah. I'm so ready. You're very excited for Cue some Cue the history. ding. Thank you. All right. Go on. But, okay. So um, we'll start by just conceptual or uh, contextualizing where Travolta's at right now. He's pretty much like down in the dumps. Very much in the dumps. No well, one... Why do you assume he's like depressed because he's doing shitty well, things? Well, I don't, I don't mean he's depressed, but I mean he's in the dumps of Hollywood. <laughs> like, no one wants Excuse to work me. with this guy. Mm-hmm. His only movies are like direct-to-video TV movies, yeah, and the Look Who's Talking trilogy. He's had a really Ooh, hard okay. '80s. Maybe that is a rough. really hard '80s. He's he's considered washed up, um, and he commits. He commits to almost every movie he's in. He commits, but everyone's like he's considered toxic for a movie if he's a part of it. Like no one wants to work with him. Oh my! Mm. Gosh. Or no one wants to work in the movie because they're like, oh, it's going to be a flop. 
Yeah, because it's John Travolta. He was the only actor in this movie who uh, the Weinsteins attempted to block from being in the movie. Yeah. Um, but um, so he's like nowhere. Um, I mean, that's not the first thing Harvey Weinstein's been wrong about. <laughs> not the first and certainly not Ayo. the last. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but he's um, he's still like he has some fans uh, such as Mr. Quentin Tarantino who uh, kind of relish in, like, the beginnings of his career. What we talked about, where, like, he was really a powerhouse in the New Hollywood movement with, like, Saturday Night Fever, Urban Cowboy, Carrie, all those movies. And up to Blowout. Blowout. All those movies that, you know, showed real promise for his career that never took off afterward. Yeah. And he's always looking for that project that's going to give him that, like, energy and, like, power he had back then, and he's struggling to find it. Yeah. In comes Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino who had just popped off with his first movie, Reservoir Dogs. Um, and during the press tour for that, he um, signed a deal with Danny DeVito's production company, Jersey Films, a $1 million deal to develop a new movie that they would then sell to a distributor. Um, so he has that money, and he decides he wants to go back to an idea he had originally before Reservoir Dogs, where he would intertwine three different like crime stories in L.A., uh, so he and his writing partner at the time, Roger Avery, uh, who he started out working at a video store with, uh, decided to dust off this idea. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> uh, so they dust off the idea and they hunker down in Amsterdam to write the script. Um, Tarantino wrote the first and third parts, which are like Marcellus Wallace and his wife. And then the uh, the Bonnie situation at the end. Mm-hmm. Whereas Avery wrote the middle part, which is the Bruce Willis part, which was called Pandemonium Reigns, mm-hmm. uh, its original conception. There's a lot of drama between the two of them, because uh, Tarantino claims he rewrote the middle part, and Avery does not get credit on the final movie, except for story by. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he wanted screenplay mm-hmm. credit, which he did not get, and it's a source of contention between them to this day. Uh, so, yeah. The, uh, they hunkered down. They wrote the script. Uh, what a jerk. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I'm still reflecting on that. <laughs> it's um, kind of when you discover Steve Jobs is an asshole. I mean, I think yes. we kind of all knew that Tarantino has a little bit of a sass, sass yeah. frass to him. Tarantino is a guy who has an ego, I would say. Oh, yeah. He's very um, eager and to it, say the N-word. <laughs> and so true. An exemplification the of N-word that. The N-word that, not just that he's acting and performing, but that he also wrote. Yeah, an, yeah. Ex- an exemplification of this is that when he finished writing the script, he wrote on the front, May 1993, last draft, indicating he would not change the script for any executive or producer. Hmm. Like, what he had written is what's getting shot, take it or leave it, or you don't make my movie. And it worked out for him because he was so hot after Reservoir Dogs. After one movie. After one movie. God um, damn. Reservoir Dogs made a lot of waves. Inarguably okay movie. That's a great movie. It's okay. Reservoir Dogs are pretty good. It's okay. I do like Steve Buscemi. <laughs> who shows up as... A waiter. Buddy Holly. <laughs> Buddy Holly. <laughs> for like 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> um, Best celebrity cameo. Changed my mind. Yeah, his his uh, idea for this movie was taking the like taking really like pastiche like standard archetypal stories and then having them confronted with real life, mm-hmm. which is all three of these like you know a guy has to go with the big man's wife, a guy has to try and like escape the mob after he throws a fight, et cetera, et cetera. 
and uh, he but then confronting them with like real life situations such as like you know the heroin overdose in the first one or the guy wanting his watch back in the second plus like the uh, the rape store um, yeah I'm forgetting what the actual store was Zed's Zed's that was probably the first time I watched uh, Pulp Fiction. I was only nine years old. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, no. <laughs> this was one and of the movies that my parents shielded me from, this and then the Ten Commandments. I do not know why. <laughs> uh, this one I watched with the babysitter who had no... Idea what it was. Like, yeah. who had no strict boundaries when it came to what I was allowed to watch on TV. Mm-hmm. Hence the reason, watch, reason why I watched the Tim Curry It, the 1990 TV movie, mm-hmm. when I was like nine or ten. And I also watched Pulp Fiction and did not know anything about that movie whatsoever all i knew was that there was a very scary man in a black leather (laughs) costume chained by the neck and i had nightmares about that for probably uh that was nine years old 24 years (laughs) oh man of all things to kind of pull out of this movie and take with you (laughs) the gimp the gimp (laughs) um but after he'd finished the script he went back to tristar who uh had expressed interest in the movie uh through his jersey films deal uh, he gave them the script. They said, this is too demented. We're not going to make this movie. Who gets the script the next day? But noted demented man, Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> reads the God. script in under an hour and says, make the deal now. They get the movie the next day. Uh, it became the first movie that Miramax had fully funded. This was shortly after oh, they wow. were purchased by Disney. Wow. Uh, so Disney made this movie, which is very funny. Well, Disney makes a lot of movies under the guise of Miramax yeah. in that, you know, their rated R aspect. But mm-hmm. there's no Disney logoing in present mm. and then shortly after they made the deal uh the wine scene sold the international rights to this movie for 11 dollars or for 11 million dollars oh i was gonna say uh, what <laughs> it was it was shot for eight million so they'd actually made their budget back before they even started shooting oh wow um originally tarantino wanted the role of vincent vega to go to michael madsen uh, from mm. reservoir dogs who had played vic vega in that movie yeah who was going to be the brother of vince vega um, he turned it down to be in a Kevin Costner movie, and the role immediately went to Travolta as the second pick. Hmm. Uh, the Weinsteins tried to fight this and tried to uh, suggest Daniel Day-Lewis for the role. Daniel Hello? Day-Lewis? Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, Tarantino stayed adamant it's Travolta or bust, or we make the movie somewhere else. Wow. Um, the Weinsteins relented, let him use Travolta, and the rest is literally history. Hmm. So, question, Jeff. Yes. Connoisseur of Pulp Fiction history. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> what was John, John Travolta's, like, input in being approached with the role? Like, was it something that you got a knock on the door? Once you well, be in this movie, yes, I'm in. Quite literally, it was a knock on the door. Um, except it was Tarantino invited Travolta over to his house. Travolta came. He knocked on the door. He walked in, and he said when he saw Tarantino's apartment... He was convinced this was a good idea. Oh, my gosh. Because he said his apartment reminded him of the apartment he was in when he was making movies like what when he was making movies like Saturday Night Fever. He said, like, it's just like, you know, a basic run me down. But you can see there's real passion in it. And this guy has the same like drive that I had back in those days. And he's going to make a good movie out of this. I don't I'm trying to picture that. what that apartment looks like. I don't like. believe it because John Travolta <laughs> says about fucking every movie he does. He, he said he we went to the premiere of Look Who's Talking. And yeah. thought this is going to be a hit, and, and it was it, the biggest movie of his career. <laughs> okay, but it Look wasn't. Who's talking? Yeah, it wasn't a critical hit though. It, it got pretty good reviews. The eh, first one, I can't. It's the like first... a, it's like a fifty-five. Mm. It's like a fifty-five percent of Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, he did have one uh, like quarrel with this movie though that he was worried about. 
uh, Travolta says that uh, three times I had set trends, um, which helped where in which he helped like relaunch disco, cowboy, urban cowboy chic, and uh, greaser aesthetics back in the seventies. He was worried that uh, his performance in this would spawn a battalion of heroin addicted hitmen. <laughs> <laughs> he said i never played a drug addict on screen do i really need to shoot up and kill people uh, honestly his... that's the level of confidence i want to walk into be yes. like people are going to love me so much <laughs> that they're going to start murdering each other and shooting up heroin yeah uh, he was very convinced that it was a good move for his career but he wasn't sure if it was a good move for him personally uh, it was finally when his wife kelly preston co-star of the experts told him you need to do this mm. that travolta said i'm gonna do this movie um he went through some wow. fights with the wine scenes, but eventually they committed and letting him make the movie. Harvey Weinstein is later quoted as saying, um, I'm so glad I had the idea to cast John Travolta. <laughs> oh my God. Um, what a lovely man. Um, <laughs> yeah, put this man in prison. Wish him well. <laughs> I have some more stuff about Travolta's design in this movie. Uh, he had a lot of input into his look. Uh, but I'll get into that when we start talking about the oh, actual movie. Oh, that's one of the first things I write down is, mm. I, I think I'll mention it when we bring it up. But are we going to pull up the the report? Oh, we're bringing up the report. Are get, we doing it right now? No, we'll do it when we start talking about okay. the plot. Cool. Okay. Because uh, there's a little more about the making of this movie that is important to contextualize where we're at. Yeah. Uh, this movie was made for $8 million, which yeah. is inconceivable nowadays with all these Seven million went towards the hair. Here's, <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, they came up... This was... During, like, the heyday of indie cinema. Yeah. Um, and at this point, big actors didn't really do indie. It was mm. like, you would get character actors for indies or up-and-comers. Big actors didn't do indies like they do nowadays. Because nowadays, an indie is, like, a $30 million movie. Back yeah. then, it was, like, a $4 million <sighs> movie. Because <sighs> Hollywood is broken nowadays. <laughs> uh, but Travolta, um, all the actors for this movie got paid the exact same amount in order to prevent, like, any agent jockeying where they would try and like fight for bigger paychecks hmm. their grim was everyone gets paid the exact same amount except for bruce willis though except for bruce willie yeah um because bruce willis was, was still the like a star in this movie. yeah he was coming off the oh. coattails of um, die hard 2 die hard 2 and like he was already like he was pretty well um desired mm -hmm. at that point in time but uh travolta and the rest of the cast got paid twenty thousand a week Okay. Travolta made a total of $140,000 on this movie, which after he mm. made millions in the 80s, major shift for him. This was a movie he did very much because he thought it was a good choice for his career. Yeah. Which we yep. talked about a lot in the beginnings era that Travolta is an actor who he needed to like check the ego at the door and be willing to take a good role that isn't as sexy Yeah, to get his career back on track. And this is when he finally makes that choice. This role is not sexy monetarily wise, nor is he particularly a great looking guy in this movie. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. When we get into the hair ranking, ooh, it's going <laughs> oh. to be spicy. It's going to be a bit spicy <laughs> when we get into it. So, um, But they were, even though this movie was shot for very cheap, um, they wanted to make it look expensive, um, which they did by building the Jackrabbit Slim set. That's all one big set. The rest of the movie shot on location, but that is a set. And the what's that? The Jackrabbit Slim, the 50s diner. Oh. That was a big set oh. that was built in a Culver City warehouse. Yeah. Okay, because I wrote in my notes, I'm like, there's no way this is a real place. This <laughs> yes. came out of Tarantino's brain. Like, <laughs> I was born in the he... wrong era level of, <laughs> I need this to be made. He vomited in that building, just emerged. Yeah, yeah essentially. Okay. Pretty much. Um, but 
to make it look more expensive, and this is something I need to ask Becca about, is they shot it on the slowest film Kodak made, which resulted in them having to use massive lights uh, because it was like very low ex- low exposure film. Mm-hmm. Or high. Um, so they'd use massive lights in order to light the scene. Uh, which is why everyone looks sweaty in this movie. Yeah, and I mean, that's actually a Robert Richardson move as well. I mean, Robert Richardson likes to shoot at very closed-down stops uh, to maximize depth of field. And so, especially, you can see it in Django Unchained, like uh, the initial scene between like Christoph Waltz and the uh, the Jewish farmer, there's like a beam, of, like a pool of light hitting the table and illuminating them. And it's so hot that it literally lights the room. And that's like a, that's like a, Robert Richardson move, but even knowing, because I didn't know that until you had mentioned it before we started the episode, I was just like, wow. Because, like, the low exposure film is a better quality. Like, it's a lower ASA. It's cleaner. It's cleaner. Not a lot of grain. Uh-huh, but it definitely, you know, on the flip side, that means you have to use very large, very large sources. And it actually informs a lot of my negative thoughts about the cinematography in this movie. Which, by the way, we should fill in context. Becca, what do you do for a living? Oh, well, Stuart, I I am She's a cinematographer. Not. Well, I, I work in camera, but mm. yeah, cinematography is a passion. Yes. Uh, Becca's a full-time camera person. Um, she's cooler than either of us Yeah, what she does. I mean, uh, I don't know. I just found out Stuart works with a very, very good heartthrob. Oh, wait a second. We're not going to say a name. Second. We're not going to say a name. We can't no, say I names. I know. That's all I was going to say is that I was very jealous of but you. But Becca jealous. is in the union sure am so that Cameron. means you're official that means yeah for for the listener at home who does not work in the film industry the fun oh, yeah the, the fun thing about unions in our industry is that for any of the like other unions you need to work 600 hours and have a job which is pretty straightforward for our Stuart and I's union for the DGA, the director's guild of America, local six, local six hundred, local mm-hmm. which is for cinematographers and like electrics, grips, camera, electrics, our, no, electrics, no, What's electrics electric? and grips are completely different. They're a different union. The four seventy six, four seventy six, four seventy six in Chicago. They're mm-hmm. split up. Local six hundred is an international union for camera, and that's mm-hmm. for camera. Yeah. Yep. Set yeah. photographers, utilities, first, second ACs, operators, yeah. and DPs. For Jeff and I, who want yeah. to be assistant directors, yeah, the guild we want to get into uh, is the same one that Quentin Tarantino is a part of. Um, yeah. As a result, it's fairly selective. We have to work six hundred days. <laughs> six hundred days. <laughs> Which is, yeah. If we worked straight for two years, we'd do it. Like no weekends or anything. Yeah. Um, but unions in this industry are very interesting. It, they're built on exclusivity. I'll yes, say it. They're I'll built say on it. exclusivity. They're built on exclusivity and for reasons. Nepotism and all that other oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. There's that. There's <laughs> for, yeah. For DGA, political. like uh, uh, being a director, because there are ways you can get in the DGA um, uh, to be a feature director um, that don't involve like the days worked. Because for getting in the DGA as an assistant director, that is more reliant on like getting your days, whereas being like a commercial or feature. Um, uh, director, as long as you are associated with um, a production, um, or as long as the production that you were hired on to direct is associated with a DGA, that gets you in the DGA. Mm-hmm. So there's no like days you have to work and all that stuff for being a feature film direct uh, DGA director. Yeah, I mean we can make a whole other podcast about the politics and yeah. and oh my god potential yeah. nepotism of, of, of the, the unions, but. What, how much good they do as well. I will advocate for that. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, we want to get into them because Tarantino. of how good they are. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Back to Tarantino. Yes. Back to Tarantino. But um, one of the... Travolta was very... Ha- or 
Tarantino is very happy with his Travolta pick for this movie. Mm-hmm. And he actually pretty much credits Travolta with setting the tone of this movie. Yeah. Um, because he did not, he says he does not realize he was making a comedy until Travolta came on and started doing his thing in this movie. Mm-hmm. And that's when he's like, oh, wait, this movie's funny as hell, which I think it is extremely funny. This is such a such a good comedy. It's very, it's a dark comedy. Yes, it's a very dark comedy, and he very much credits Travolta with kind of setting that tone. Yeah, because mm. he's just written a bunch of like tough guys doing things, and then Travolta's like, "What if the tough guys were all dumb?" True. All the nah. tough good guys are yes. dumb because there's a bunch of bad tough guys that are dumb. Yes, but if the good guys who we're supposed to be rooting for are, are dumb. dumb, and I think that's something that is very much misread when it comes to Tarantino's movies is he gets a lot of like flack sometimes for just like doing like cool guy movies. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very important in telling that in almost all of his movies, like the guys are dumb, incompetent or evil. Like in this Mm -hmm. movie, all like the white dudes are incompetent and evil and dumb. And the only characters with, like, brains in them are almost always the women and the people of color in his movies. What about um, Christoph Waltz's character in Django Unchained? I think there's a reason he dies two-thirds of the way through the movie. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds? Yeah. I would say 90%. Uh, There's a little bit left in. There's the whole bit with the Australians. Oh, gosh. Then he has to come back and fight Walton. Yeah, Jeff and I have discussed this before about, like, how I was disappointed that Christoph Waltz's character was killed off so early in Django Unchained, when really he was set up to be a white savior character. But then it's really, it's Django's movie. It's, like, his story. And so Mm. by killing him very unceremoniously, it, it lends itself to lessen that white savior a lot of Tar- I feel like most of Tarantino's movies are in some way almost a deconstruction of masculinity mm-hmm. and he's yeah. just trying to get to and he's trying to portray it in a negative light almost always or if it's in a positive light it's in like a brotherly like intimate way that you don't often see in cinema male intimacy yeah like once my time in Hollywood is just about two guys who are really good friends they're both idiots but they're good friends and they're happy about it Django Unchained, the white savior character is wiped out. Jackie Brown, Robert De Niro, pretty much like the pinnacle of masculinity in that time. Uh, in every role he played, was always like the tough guy against the system. He plays like a total idiot, druggy, uh, who's the bad guy of that movie. Almost all of Tarantino's movies are deconstructing masculinity and putting women and people of color in the forefront. And <laughs> yes, and, here, and but here's the thing: I'm going to turn it around. I think the problem is: is he the guy who should be telling these stories? Oh, that's the question. I think people are always trying to people are always trying to ask are always asking the question. Tarantino's movies are the um, do the discredit like non white guys. And I think the credit is no, I think he's trying to be a really woke filmmaker. And I don't know if he's the correct voice for that. He's definitely not the correct voice. I have very many, many, many things about what he does. I do. I do want to say this is getting a little bit outside the context of this episode. But in our next episode. He did recommend Travolta for his and he, he next produced that movie. Uh, and he produced that. Did movie. he really? Yes. His production company did. I don't know if he had like direct involvement. And that movie his... is the pinnacle of the nineties colorblindness. And we will talk about that next week. Yeah. We'll talk about that next week. And I will not be here because I refuse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that's pretty much the the story of how this movie got made. That took 30 minutes. Okay. Yeah. We got off topic a few times, but that's the story of how this movie got made is it yeah. was a passion project for all involved. Uh, Travolta 
Tarantino, all the like, Sam Jackson. They finally got this movie made. They went into production, and it changed cinema. And now let's talk about the movie. Let's talk about Pulp Fiction. The movie. Um, I just put music there. So Did you? Well, you won't know. Oh, I guess I'll <laughs> Yeah, so... Um, I was going to start singing Wipeout, but it's actually just like, Wipeout! That's it. <laughs> so, Stuart, if you want to kind of lead us in the conversation of the plot. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, it starts off with uh, the definition of pulp. Yes. It literally gives us two definitions of <laughs> Two definitions pulp. of pulp, uh, which I... An amorphous matter uh, without shape or form, an amor- <laughs> which is basically what this movie is. It's a... Yeah. Amorphous with no point. Yeah. And then it has a second definition, which yeah. is... Uh, classic, like, stories uh, traditionally well, printed on, like, poor quality paper, which is why it was called pulp. Well, yeah. it was also promiscuous material. Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. yeah promiscuous or, uh, like, raw or, like, violent. Like a centerfold. Yeah. yeah like, it's like the opening scene of Rubber. Have you guys seen Rubber? I've no. not seen Rubber. The, the Rubber is a movie about a sentient tire that rolls around the desert and with its telekinetic mm-hmm. powers makes people's heads explode. As one does. Look this up on IMDb, kids. It's a real movie that exists. I'm sure you can watch it on Netflix or who, whatever. The opening scene of that movie is um, the side character who plays a sheriff who's investigating these heads exploding murders. And he like breaks the fourth wall and talks to the audience and says, nothing you see will matter movie begins Mm. and i i watch this pulp definition of like the amorphous blob with no form or shape and i'm Mm. like okay it's telling it's telling you exactly what it's like in tenet at the beginning when a character says don't try and understand it just feel it yeah okay how'd that work out how'd that work out for tenet though um it worked out a solid seven out of ten for me okay (laughs) yeah so Um, i i felt it and it was okay and um, then we open on uh, this uh, breakfast bar, yes, uh, bre- coffee shop, diner with uh, Tim Roth and Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer. Amanda Plummer, uh, pumpkin and uh, Honey Bunny. Honey Bunny. I read that uh, Honey Bunny was actually the name of uh, Tarantino's typist. Um, her pet, um, I forget. What, I think her pet rabbit. So the t- typist wasn't called Honey Bunny. No, her rabbit was called Honey gotcha. Bunny, and Tarantino and it died during production of this movie. So he named the character Honey Bunny as a homage to her rabbit. He probably just wanted her to work an extra week and said, "Hey, I'll <laughs> name this. I'll name a character Honey Bunny for your fucking dead rabbit. Now get back to work and write me another draft." <laughs> you um, need more feet. Because they said that uh, she said that Tarantino was functionally illiterate uh, and just would hand her notebooks where he scribbled things indecipherably, and she would type up the what he had written and grammar, uh, make a correct grammar. Oh my! Wow, um, which is an interesting way to write a movie. It is. I do uh, kind of picture Quint Tarantino. I mean, he's he's smart, mm-hmm. but I do kind of feel like he's a little brutish. Yeah. And, and it's probably something that's just like he's a misguided brute. Yes. Misunderstood. Misunderstood. <laughs> possibly misguided. Mm-hmm. Brute. A little misguided, maybe. Yeah. I mean, yeah. super tall. Man, we start with Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer in this in breakfast this restaurant. Breakfast and they're just talking about it. He's like, Tim Roth's just saying, you know, the thing is, they rub a bank. The security's all over the place. Rob liquor stores, gun stores. People no, one are, ever robs, pe- no one ever robs a restaurant. People are ex- <laughs> people are expecting you to rob a bank. <laughs> <laughs> people expect- are expecting you to rob a gas station. They're not expecting you to rob a restaurant. <laughs> you get to get the stuff in the dining, go around, get everyone's wallets. That's why you made the real money. Manager doesn't give a fuck. He just wants you to leave. 
These are the worst accents we've ever done on the show. I'm just kind of watching this happen. Um, but this opening scene to me very much establishes the like establishes that pulp, but establishes the randomness of this movie. That they're two robbers, and they've established that they're robbers by talking about what yes, they're about to do. Yes, and they're just do. sitting around talking about their this plan. robbery they're going to do. Yeah, and then they begin the robbery. Yes. Cut to guitars. Guitars. Yeah, I was going to say awesome title music. sequence. Yeah. I mean, Tarantino always kills his title sequences. Um but this one in particular was just so much fun. It's so cool. Well, yeah. Tarantino. I, okay. Start the ding early. Yeah. Uh. But I have a screenwriter friend who says that the way Quentin Tarantino writes is that the, he writes his headings and then below that in parentheses, it's like, um, song reference. And he puts a song mm-hmm. reference for yeah. how the scene should be played out. And so like Quentin Tarantino's use of copyrighted music, um, is something that, because, you know, you always think as, like, indie filmmakers, you have mm. to, like, get a composer and you yeah. can't use, like, copyrighted song. If you want to use something that's somewhat of, a like, a style-esque, like, an 80s song or a 90s song or a current top 40 song, you have to have, like, a knockoff copyright-free version. Mm-hmm. But Tar- Tarantino's, like, consistent needed use for copyrighted music yeah. is something that I think lends so much to like the the feeling and vibe yeah, he he very rarely had use a score in his movies could once upon yeah. a time work with a score not a soundtrack probably not as well it's the, yeah. the he uses the music oh. in his movies to set the mood and the tone 100 uh, percent. yes <laughs> yeah but that definitely sets hateful eight apart mm. yes and it he does got and Ennio Morricone. That, yeah and nino Morricone kills that title sequence and it's unlike any other tarantino film Tarantino had, to my knowledge, tried to get Ennio Morricone to score one of his movies for like 10 years or something mm-hmm. like that. And he kept saying no, and then he finally did it for Hateful Eight. Yeah. Um, which uh. is very funny. Yeah. So, uh, title sequence. Travolta, top build. Top and, build. In spite of not being the biggest star in this movie, he gets the top build because uh, this is a redemption project for him uh, from Tarantino, and he wants Travolta to get that credit. All because he watched Blowout. All because he watched Blowout. Yeah. And this, I would say this movie is very reminiscent of his performance in Blowout. Not in terms of the character he's playing, but in the intensity he's bringing to it. No, I don't I, know. His, his character's the least intense person on mm. screen. Yes, I would agree. Because I, th- I think Sam Jackson has more powerhouse moments. Yes. I would say Travolta's is the most consistently throughout his pieces nuanced mm. and like yeah. deep. But... Yeah. Like, in terms of moments where you're, like, leaning in the back of your seat, like, holy fuck, mm. it's Sam Jackson, Bruce Willis in some moments, and, yeah. Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman. I, sure. I more yeah. so meant, uh, my apologies, my, I more so meant in terms of how, like, is not an actor who I necessarily associate with doing a lot of, like, bits for the characters. Mm-hmm. Like, he's an actor who just, like, plays the scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's only in like his really great performances where you he like envelops this whole character Fair into enough. himself. Yeah. And I feel like between this blowout, Saturday Night Fever, those are the movies where you really like it doesn't feel like John Travolta playing this character. It feels like this character. And yeah. you said he had a lot of uh word in how he was gonna look. Yes. Um so Travolta picked I mean Tarantino picked like the outfits they wore, which were the uh like you know the suits and ties and whatnot. Uh Travolta was very adamant that he designed the hair. He called it the Euro haircut. He says it's sometimes Euro trash and sometimes wait, elegant. Wait, wait, wait. We got to start the soundtrack while we get into this whole thing. Okay, so cue the hair ranking.
Okay, welcome to the hair ranking. Uh, Tarantino did not want to do that hair. Uh, Travolta said, please just take a look at me in it. Uh, he did the <laughs> test, and Tarantino thought it was so funny, so he let him keep it for this movie, where he has the mullet with like the little like dread, dread almost like hanging down the front. Um, he also developed his character's way of speaking in this movie, um, in which he thought it would just be funny to like um, overemphasize everything with his lips and his teeth. And he said he rehearsed this with the line, Royale with cheese. And the way he says it, he's like, Royale with the cheese. At, I, you know, I was going to say towards the end of the movie, and I'm trying to think about when he puts on like an a, like a southern accent after shooting Martin in the face. This like, is something that Tra- Travolta does a lot, we've noticed, where he like, even though he's from Jersey, he like does a southern accent a lot. Every, every so Marvin. often. <laughs> you think yeah. God came down? <laughs> 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 But in terms of his hair, like I, th- this is the note I wrote: hair, no; earring, no; both. And I said maybe. <laughs> Crossed it out after a while and said definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my feelings on the matter. Well, in my perspective, yeah, when it comes to the hair ranking report of John Travolta's hair in Pulp Fiction, nineteen ninety four, I gotta say, like it gave me the most life. <laughs> in 14 years <laughs> most life <laughs> because let's rewind the clock before like, clock rewinding it's 1980 he had done blowout yes he's gonna do staying alive yes nothing much after that yes everything after that is all just like the same dumb like adult dad Travolta hair except for the experts which is except for the experts which, which is a crime against humanity <laughs> and it, it violates the Geneva conventions <laughs> we won't talk about the experts hair the experts is currently locked up in Guantanamo Bay <laughs> <laughs> but Pulp Fiction hair like when you when we cut from the title sequence to uh Travolta and Jackson driving in the car and you first see Travolta in his hair you can't help but like who is that? <laughs> it, that, that it's a choice. really transforms into a character it's in this not movie. not Travolta. It is a different person. Yeah. And Vega. so here is my criteria. While not exactly stylish like or cool, like Stain Alive or Carrie, how it lends to the story, how it lends to the character, bumps it up a few notches for me. Wait, how far? Okay, let me see the ranking. I got it right. I got it right Let me here. see the ranking. Let me see this shit. Okay. Put it. It's about to be spicy. The audience is loving this silence right now as you <laughs> stare at this list. Well, so just to reiterate to the audience, it's Staying Alive, Carrie, Grease, Saturday Night Fever, Shout. That's my top five. Then I think it's going to go in the top five. Ooh. All right. I think it's going to bump Shout to number six. Ooh. It's going right below Saturday right Night Right below Fever. Saturday Night Fever. Okay. Yeah. I can, I can, because yeah. Because of the story element of it. Not particularly because of, like, oh, that's hot hair. Because that's not hot hair. Crap. I thought this was like a super superficial list here. <laughs> going based surely on looks, like purely on looks. Most of the Stuart, time it Stuart's is. Stuart's a connoisseur. I am a connoisseur of John Travolta's hair. And I got to give the this, audience what they need. Yeah, this hair is such a choice. And it's not a choice where it's like, it's so bad, like Battlefield Earth, like dreadlocks on a white man. Yeah. Like, that that's a choice. 
But this is like a choice. Like it's, mm. a, it's, it's a, a choice. And choice. The choice. second you underline, see underline, not bold. Underline. Under yes, that's exactly what it is. It's underlined and not bold, not italicized. Very good. Not highlighted. Yeah. yeah. Not strike through. Underlined. Underlined. And like the second you see like kind of oafish looking Travolta wearing that hair in that opening scene, you understand immediately who this guy is. Hundred percent. You're like, this is some like doofus ass hitman who um totally just like has no idea what he's doing he just does the work because he's like this is cool and i feel cool doing it this is a guy who if we accidentally shot a guy in the back of the trunk i wouldn't want to clean it up with anybody else yes (laughs) and that's why it's number five uh yes that's the hair ranking report congrats vincent vega (laughs) but this uh this opening scene of them in the car it's just it's what tarantino's known for it's just guys just talking about things that don't seem important but inform character which is a lot what a lot of film school people like to do in their movies yeah except it's talking about nothing except they don't understand how to do it right and it just literally is about nothing it's boring as hell yeah um the scene he knows how to write it so it's engaging mm-hmm. um and the actors know how to play it so it informs the characters that they are yeah like it's even I wrote down a line that I thought was really funny is after they go through the whole like Royale with cheese thing, Sam Jackson's just like, All right, but what do they call a whopper in France? And, Jay, and Charles is like, I didn't go into I didn't go into BK. <laughs> I didn't go in Burger King. <laughs> it's like it's almost like he's got some beef with Burger King. <laughs> like, like our fucking this, like, beef with White Castle. Travolta like, has this like hidden beef with Burger King. He's like, No, nah, I only went to McDonald's. Why would I go to Burger King in Amsterdam or wherever he was? Well He was in Paris. Paris, yes. Fuck White Castle. <laughs> yeah, sorry. You know the it's, chain that I've wasn't holding, mentioned? I've been White holding Castle. it in, and I haven't really done a bit on it in a while, so I just have to reiterate for our audience, in the second era, episode number one, and we're not going to call it... Are we going to call it season two? Are we gonna no, keep it on it's, season the same, it's the same season. Same it's season, just, just a, a different, different era. era. Okay. Season one, episode 22, first episode in the second era. Fuck White Castle. Yes. Let's just make it's sure, important. Let's make sure it's consistent here. Let's make sure it's consistent. <laughs> But the whole the whole scene's really great, um, and then they finally get to where they're going uh, because they talk about they're going to um, like pick their hitmen for a guy named a gangster called Marcellus Wallace. Yes, uh, and they're picking up a briefcase that some like drug dealers had ripped off of him. Yeah, so they they mosey into this apartment building. We get this very cool long shot where it's just them just kind of walking around a hallway of the apartment building, uh, discussing foot massages. Yeah, and he's like, "Would you give a man a foot massage?" Yeah. Um, well, and this was about you. this was the story where like he's talking about Marcellus Wallace's uh, wife Mia, who's played by Uma Thurman, and he's like, "Yeah, like well, you know this guy Tony or whatever got thrown Antoine. off our Antoine got thrown off our roof." He's like, "What he got thrown off a roof for?" It's like he gave Mia a foot massage, and this sort of lays down the track of like Travolta's future scene with yeah. Mia in the diner. That where it's like, oh shit, like he's can't can't mm-hmm. mix. You can't make a mistake here or else, God forbid, yeah. what happens. Yeah. And the, the Antoine story is also important because throughout the movie, we get three different versions of that story. Yeah. Right. And so it just kind of informs like the pointlessness of this whole thing. There's like no direct truth to it. Right. It's just a movie about nothing. Just this story. No one knows what the hell the point of it is. Right. One and of those... I, I was going to say, because later on, I'll kind of mention how I think some of the dialogue here is too verbose for the characters it's embodying. And it's kind of my problem with Tarantino for a while that I think he does definitely doesn't like slide into until his like mid later years in, in directing when he kind of has like two forms of dialogue. The ones that are like the Christoph Waltz is uh, or like later on 
when Vince Vega's looking at himself in the mirror, he's kind of like, um, I don't know. He's just using this verbose language that just doesn't feel like his character. But then he, you know, earlier he was talking about Royale with cheese. Mm-hmm. No, I didn't go to Burger King. <laughs> it, you know, like those those two things are disconnected. Whereas this, the dialogue that we're talking about right now in the hallway feels very natural, feels very like in character. But then mm-hmm. after a while in this movie, it kind of breaks it a little bit for the sake of having that like goofy out of character dialogue for no yeah. reason. And I'll kind of, I'll reflect on that a little bit. I, I think that, um, the thing about this movie for me is that the first 70 minutes of it are like electrifying as yeah. all hell. Yeah. Like I'd say the first 70 minutes of this movie are perfect, are near perfection. I think it falls off a little in the second half. Um, and I don't think necessarily like it's bad. I think it's just good. Pretty Instead much of, right after he shoots all the guys in the apartment, we see Bruce Willis and Marcellus and then the diner scene. And then pretty much after her OD, it's pretty yeah, I think once we start the Bruce Willis story, the gold watch, that's yeah. when this movie gets a little slow. I, I would yeah. agree with that. Yeah. I think the Bruce Willis scene is, goes on for a little too long. Um, it's not as engaging as the rest of the movie. It's even more pointless than what many of the other story yes. arcs had been. Um, but I almost th- forget that he's like a boxer. Yeah. Actually. And it doesn't, right. it doesn't have the thing. energy, the rest of the, like the first seven minutes of the movie have such an energy and electricity to them. Like, you just feel yourself being pulled along with this movie. You're like, oh, this is exciting. And, and you know, mm-hmm. after he gets the gold watch, when do we hear about it at the rest of the uh, storyline? We do not. Like, never. So the whole beginning part of that Bruce Willis storyline where it's all this emphasis on this watch and then half the second half of it is Zed's whole rapey store thing. Mm-hmm. There's no stakes with the watch. There's nothing to do with, like, oh, we lost the watch again. It's got to get it back. Like, it. Yeah. totally switches into like, like a survival holy fuck i'm about to and get raped that that is the intention of it though is that's a, a a pulp story faced with reality yeah which is the idea and i agree that i think it, it drags a lot mm-hmm. um, my only disagreement is with the uh mia vincent arc which mm-hmm. that has a consistent full yes. arc which is vincent can't fuck up the date in a good or bad way mm-hmm. he fucks up in a bad way meaning he doesn't show me a good time he gets fucked up by marcellus mm-hmm. he just fucks up the date in a good way with mia he gets fucked up by marcellus yeah so it has a consistent through line with twists and turns that relay mm-hmm. to that consistent arc where it pays off at the end that, that section is just so good yeah right um, we'll quickly wrap up the they go into the apartment and they get the briefcase. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to bounce back yeah, and forth too. There's they, been like a hundred thousand different interpretations and analyzing about that scene that like it, there's. Yeah, people have talked about that scene a lot. Yeah. I don't we think all know we can it's add to this insanely good. It's so funny. It's like, especially like, I wish I hadn't seen that film. I think a lot of people know that Sam Jackson and John Travolta play hitmen. Mm-hmm. When they're discussing cheeseburgers, they are about to go kill some folks. Yes. So, like, the whole, like, uh, you know, oh, there's just having this casual conversation, and then, bam, all hell breaks loose, and it's like, oh, my God, I didn't know mm-hmm. this was going to happen. Like, you know, I think that whole mysticism behind that scene is kind of pulled away, considering just how mm-hmm. big this film is. But it doesn't make that scene any less... Exciting. Yeah. Well, that and- first trunk shot, when they yeah. are getting their guns, and he's like, we should have brought some shotguns, and he's like, how many guys are up there? It's like three four including our target i don't know so there could be five or more up there should have brought shotguns yeah (laughs) (laughs) so it's like this is after they had just got done with the royale with cheese conversation so it's like you kind of know already it's like oh they're they're hitmen they're like discussing burgers and shotguns in the same like Mm -hmm. yeah and it's a tarantino special equally as much importance to them yeah 
And the yeah. one thing I did write in my notes is, you know that emoji that's like the two eyes and the mouth in between, yeah. and it's like a gaping. And I just put neighbors. <laughs> neighbors. When, my, when Sam Jackson is just like going into him, just just, screaming. Mm, that is a tasty burger. That the <laughs> neighbors are just like, what is going on? And they hear a bunch of gunshots. I want the I want the Pulp Fiction sequel where it's just the neighbors listening in on this conversation, <laughs> and then somebody in the in the uh, just the observer the restaurant. Yeah watching everything go down yeah and then someone outside of the rape store <laughs> seeing him like kathy griffin almost get shot <laughs> yeah kathy griffin is in this movie for one shot it's very strange yeah yeah uh, but uh they, they get the briefcase they open it up there's light inside it's gold people are always like oh it's probably people think it's like marcel swallis's soul <laughs> it's oh like my. A, there's a lot of very weird discussion everyone involved in the movie is like it no it's just a MacGuffin. it's just there yeah uh, Sam Jackson was asked what what's in the briefcase, and he said it's uh, two batteries and a light bulb. <laughs> um, so the briefcase, everyone tries to ascribe importance to it. I think it's just there to give a point, and Tarantino thought it'd be funny if it if it shined light. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a, you know it's like the Maltese Falcon or the Ark of the Covenant or something. It's there to inform the story. It doesn't have an importance. <laughs> um, i do i do like your use of mcguffin though that's yes. a word i've been trying to think about this entire podcast uh, it's the best word it's mcguffin the mcguffin yeah there's um my favorite is at the bar at amc's it's called mcguffin's bar hmm. uh, oh like at amc's where they have Peters. like a bar near to the stack bar it's called mcguffin's bar wow because it's like you know it's an irish name like a pub but it's also what the fuck happened in the movie is that is that the joke? Yeah. Oh. That's the joke. Oh. I thought it was just a movie that reference. That is the joke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> ha, 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 Jeff. Yeah. Very. Um, but yeah, they finish there, and then we cut to Bruce Willis, mm-hmm. who's just sitting there, and we get this yeah. really, uh, this uh, kind of just the static shot of his face. Mm-hmm. And I love how they do this shot. I mean, seconds ago, you were saying this is where the movie slumps. I think the movie, no, I think the movie slumps during the Bruce Willis storyline. Because this really this is isn't Bruce the Bruce Willis storyline. Oh, okay. This is like enough. right before the Mia and uh, Vincent scene. Yeah. yeah. And I think that Bruce Willis, his greatest skill as an actor is almost just how like blank of a void his face is. Mm-hmm. That it works is like this Kuleshov effect, uh, which is the effect of like if you put like a blank face next to any image, it tells a different story. And so I think Bruce Willis's face is so useful in this because Mark, he's just staring without moving his face or giving any expression. Mm-hmm. But based on what Marcellus Wallace is saying, whether he's saying a good thing or a bad thing, you can read a different expression on Bruce Willis's face. Yeah. Because yeah. Marcellus is like, you're washed up and it looks like he's angry at him. You're going to feel a sting. That's yeah. pride. Punch yeah. it, punch, beat it down or something. And he says like, you're going to make a lot of money and it looks like Bruce Willis is pleased, but he's not moving his face at all. It's just this really cool scene of Bruce Willis's skills, like almost like a doll you can put anything on. Well, and to take that point even further, it's like when he offers him money and then Bruce Willis like reaches for it, but he like kind of taunts him with it a little bit. And, uh, to lend towards the character, he's like, uh, I think what was Marcellus say? He's like, you know, you're my bitch, right? Yeah. And he just (laughs) takes like, seems that way mm-hmm. he just puts in his jacket pocket like and he doesn't give anything off yeah. any any more like facial expression like he's not offended he's not yeah. held this but it's when he's when vincent vega and vincent says like one thing to him yeah and he his facial expressions are like 
he gets what? angry. He gets angry. But when it's in front of Marcellus, he has to mm. have like the stone cold like stare look. Yeah. I think that that points to Marcellus. If anything, you know, rub your woman's feet. He throws you out a window. Yeah. Give him a side eye. He, he's going to kill you. Yeah. And I, th- I think at, to finish off the Bruce Willis thing, I think it's very telling for him as an actor that his most icon- like famous role in terms of quality is um, a role where he literally plays a ghost that doesn't know he's a ghost. Bruce Willis, like, he just plays blank emptiness very well. Not Die Hard? I think Die Hard is his most iconic. Fifth I would element? think I would say... The this Sixth is Sense Fifth is, Element Erasure, and I will not stand for it. The Sixth Sense is probably his most, like, well-respected performance in terms of a good movie. He almost got nominated for an Oscar for that. Keyword, almost. Yes. <laughs> not unbreakable he's no. even in unbreakable he's playing the same like he's playing a guy with like trying to discover who feels empty inside until he finds a point at the end of the movie looper he's playing looper. a guy who's empty inside. <laughs> bruce willis plays <laughs> every every good performance from Wait bruce willis why don't we keep let's do this <laughs> every good let's performance from right bruce now. willis is he's playing a guy who's empty inside i'm gonna challenge and the this. movie is placing I was about to, I was really about to throw one at you about over the hedge, but actually he's like, he's in the raccoon is like pulling everybody together to like form a plan, but he was just going to ditch everyone all yeah. along. Cause he's really just lonely. Cause he doesn't have a home. He's trying to get his home back. Cause I a, think that's the plot. Yeah, of over there's the a hedge. bear who's GI Joe retaliation. <laughs> I would not say that's one of his good performances. <laughs> I said good performances, not performances. good performance. Right, uh, right. Moonrise kingdom. I oh, have not seen that in a long that. time. Yeah. I mean, everyone is stone-faced in a... Mm, in a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. That's true. But Bruce... I'm just saying Bruce Willis is an actor where you use his face and you have the emotions of the actors in the scene around them inform what you're reading his, his face at. I mean, I would argue that the actors and story have to do all the heavy work for Bruce Willis. Mm, yes. They put they, they do the heavy is work. Is he cameo in Friends? Probably. I'm pretty sure he's in Friends. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this this like little Bruce Willis scene that I think is so good happens. Oh, can I ask? Yes. What's the band aid for? Apparently, that was just actually on um, what's his name's head mm-hmm. at the time, and Tarantino liked how it looked. I guess it really works considering we don't see his identity. He's like, oh, a character part of this is literally just the band aid on the back yeah. of his head. It's just okay. the it's just the signifying marker. Okay. Um, it gives you something to look at, makes him a little more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like that we never see Marcellus Wallace's face in this movie until it's like this really like demasculating demasculating thing where he's walking around carrying like cupcakes or something. Yeah. He's carrying like a cake or like donuts or I don't something. Know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that that's, I think that's a really and good detail. Then he gets raped. Yes. Oh, oh. Um, but yeah, baby. Oh yeah. Baby Mikey's in this movie mm-hmm. um, from the Lucas talking trilogy. Get the uh, fuck out. Baby Mikey. There's the door. <laughs> Don't you um. bring that shit in here. <laughs> That's era one shit, man. <laughs> Let's keep that mid era one. <laughs> We're in era two. Don't you but, bring that in here. Yeah. Uh, uh, shortly after that, Travolta respect. and Sam Jackson walk in wearing shorts and t-shirts. No explanation how with the briefcase. It See, like if you're really watching this for cut. the first time and Becca, this might be good for you. Mm-hmm. Like, and, Many people know about this before even going into the movie about the non-linear narrative. Yeah. So like, because I watched this movie trying to think of it as like, if I was watching this for the first time, how would I interpret all these different story pieces? And I would say, spoiler alert, it's not until you get to Vincent Vega 
dying in the Bruce Willis story yeah. than going into yeah. the um, the the coffee shop scene when it really hits home. Oh, it's nonlinear because mm-hmm. everything else in theory could be like, oh, this might be two weeks from now, yeah. or this might be a day later, or a month later, or mm-hmm. a year later. Like the the Vincent Vega Mia uh, story arc scene. Um, I think the one right after that is the Bruce Willis one. Or yes. am I wrong in saying that? Yeah. yeah. And that's when they're at the boxing gym. Um, Vincent's walking into um, one of the training rooms where he sees Mia. And Mia says, thanks for the good night, by the way. Yeah. So, so far in the movie, it seems like everything could have happened in linear sequence yeah. until that bit where Vincent dies. Which and then, is pretty cool because my interpretation when they rolled up in different clothes was, oh. It's just another gig. Well, no, I... I I thought it had come right after um, they shot up the apartment mm. um, and figured they got blood on their clothes, which isn't wrong. Mm. It was just a different death. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. When but I was... I'm like, shorts and t-shirt, like, oh, okay, it's just Tarantino being funny. Like, it works as a good gag, even without the nonlinear. Yeah. But then once you get the understanding of it later, it's mm-hmm. very funny to yeah. see how it happened. And I think that's that's just great writing. It doesn't necessarily serve like, oh, the story and the whole idea of the movie changes when you realize it's nonlinear. No, it's honestly just fun. Yeah. Yeah. It, it lets the ending of this movie be, like, optimistic. Even, even though, though you, one of the char- oh, even though yeah. you know one of the characters gets murdered, that's true. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, it does kind of change the ending. The very right. like the interesting thing about this movie to me is how it's nonlinear, but it still follows like almost a three act structure. Yeah. In terms of these lead characters, like at the end, Jackson and Travolta kind of have like a redemption arc. They make their peace. That even though you know Travolta's still in the game, and he gets murdered earlier in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, he's not with Jules. Yeah, like it works as like a linear arc for yeah. a non-linear story. So maybe Jules like got out or something. Jules got uh, out. There's yeah. a reading of this movie that uh, Sam Jackson subscribes to where it's about redemption and that Tar- Travolta is the only character who doesn't uh, try and like who just sticks with his game and doesn't try and like break free or do anything else or seek redemption. And that's why he's the one character who dies. Hmm. Um, that I think is very interesting. I don't know if I fully subscribe to it, but I think it's very interesting. I'm holding up my finger to cue the ding, but I don't know if it's a ding-worthy thing yet. The thing that's funny is that you can we're not taking a video right now, so you're going to have to just rely on intuition for these dings. I know. <laughs> Some of them are probably going to come up before we even... like. Stuart and I have been miming a little like like yeah. little doorbell ding every time we think either Jeff or ourselves say something that's very film yes. bro esque because yeah. this movie tends itself but yeah this movie i mean i even got a vape in my hand too so it's like <laughs> oh my god i got all that going for oh, me too crap, i'm drinking a Lacroix. oh no <laughs> oh god how did we do this to ourselves we what, did. what's this quentin tarantino is walking in the room right now <laughs> whoa oh my god is that stanley kubrick behind him <laughs> oh my god oh my god the whole gang is Aronofsky, here wow martin scorsese is repelling in from the ceiling <laughs> Oh my God! The whole team is here. I, all this, what you're saying, uh, while well, I look guys, behind the, you and I see a there's pizza and beers in the, in the next room. You say all this, just hang I, out, just hang out, and I'll be out. In everyone's a coming bit. to watch our screening of Holy Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> you say all this, and then behind you was a Birdman or the Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance poster, Empire Strikes Back, and Rocky. That's all behind you right now that yeah. I'm seeing. Fine cinema. Fine cinema. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Jack, Jack Nicholson. Oh, oh shit. man. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't see you stand over. Okay. <laughs> Next hey, scene. Stuart, how are you doing? No, oh, God, we're not no. going to do this. How are we're you? not, we're not do this. doing that. I'm gonna go wait in the other room. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Jack Nicholson. Are you guys cool if I take it in gotta, here? Okay. Go you gotta. Cool. You gotta cool. beer. It's already humid here. enough in here, so I think it's yeah. a little okay. bit of steam. All right. I'm, I'm gonna get Jack into the other room, and then we can. Oh, you know, I wrote down. It said, "I, I wrote is down why is there smooth jam." Yeah, yeah, Jack, that's the bathroom right there. Oh my god. I'm trying to have a discussion here. Hey, hey. The only woman in this podcast right now is getting interrupted. I just I was gonna I was about to say, Jeff, let's we gotta I'm gonna put (laughs) two more dings there. (laughs) Okay, Becca, please continue. The only thing I was gonna say is that I think the soundtrack in the bar when Bruce Willis is talking to Marcellus about the boxing match and Vincent Vega and um I can only ever say Vincent Vega and Sam Jackson. <laughs> That's wrong. Uh, Jules? Jules. Yes. Jules, thank you. What's Sorry, his when last they name? Winfield. Jules. I just know Jules. Winfield. Oh, okay. Well, when they walk in, there's like this smooth jazz or like this, like these jams in the background that don't sound like they're in the bar. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a track alongside the audio, and I don't know why, and it was very distracting for me, that whole Interesting. movie. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I had to write it down. I'm like, why is this? So you see it as a, a diegetic soundtrack instead of non-diegetic? <laughs> you might as well put the Mario dying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so it's, and then it's this point when Marcellus tells Vincent. Yeah, like you're Mia. going out with Mia tonight. You're going out with Mia. This is and, following the scene where we learn what happened to Antoine. Yeah. For massaging and his the, feet, which is in the same ballpark, according to Vincent, as cunnilingus. Yes, um, but then <laughs> not we, the words he uses in the movie. We then cut to black, and we see the words like Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife, which is a fun way to like have titles for each section of this movie. In my um, opinion, unnecessary. Unnecessary. Yeah. Interesting. Do you guys watch yeah. the four-part Hateful Eight series on Netflix? I did not. No. Because it's like the entire movie, but four hours long Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) i did and so like each four section has its like own title sequence Mm -hmm. i don't know if in the original like theatrical release that they have the title sequence it does does. okay i think every tarantino movie is separated into sequences yeah Um, once upon a time in hollywood django unchained Mm -hmm. i think glorious bastards has um title cards yes um i'm pretty sure all of them have title cards because he kind of views a lot of his movies as three individual movies like segmented yeah Yeah. like the three different stories telling an overarching story i personally would want to know if the movie is either better or worse without them Mm -hmm. because for this movie i did not need them but for Mm -hmm. inglorious bastards maybe Mm -hmm. but no i mean because that one's more linear than anything because they they segment who the main character of each part of the movie is because like with vince vega marcellus Wallace's wife it's john travolta with um, the gold watch, it's Bruce Willis. With the final sequence, it's, it's Sam Jackson. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of segment who the lead character of each section is. Just as in Inglorious Bastards, the first part's um, Shoshana. Then it shifts to um, Brad Pitt. Shifts to Michael Fassbender for the whole bar scene. That's fair. Um, he kind of segments who the lead character of each part of the movie is with these title cards. Even once my time in Hollywood shifts between, you know. Yeah, maybe I'm double-backing on my idea about the, or my opinion of the titles then. Because it's really not that critical. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think it's critical, but I guess it it lends itself to a little bit of contextualizing. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. But in the first bit in the section 
Travolta is going to his drug deal. He's at a, he's getting heroin from he his is, drug dealer. I wrote he is so funny in this scene because he's just like he's like yeah I'll try some of the heroin out <laughs> and like it's just all these close-ups of him being. If I like high. it, I'll come back and buy a thousand. You but mind if I shoot up here? He looks so stupid when he's pretending to be high in this. He is playing this to such pitch perfection as like this stupid bodyguard who's like setting him up, himself up for failure immediately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's so funny in this scene. Yeah. And we love a good mirror shot. Yes. You know, originally Tarantino uh, was deciding between the two roles that he was going to play. And one of them was the drug dealer. Mm. Um, Jimmy, I think. or Jimmy is who he plays. Who is the name of the drug dealer guy? I forget, but it's played by Eric Stoltz. Guy who is not Jeff Bridges. Guy who is not Jeff Bridges. Right. (laughs) I was literally going to say that in the the movie. This is the dude. This is the dude. I mean, this whole movie is Big Lebowski energy, 100%. Yeah, it it definitely is. Um, So much so there's like a Bonnie and a Bunny in corresponding films. So They have very uh, like mid-90s LA vibes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, he was considering of playing the drug dealer, but I read this on the IMDb trivia page. The reason why he chose to play Jimmy was because he wanted to be behind the camera during Mia's overdose scene. Mm. He wanted to be like make sure he was taking absolute care of that particular moment in Which the movie. Makes sense. Rather than like being in front of the camera and having to act and direct at the same time. Oh, fascinating. Makes sense. Instead, um, Eric Stoltz plays this character. You know what's another solution, Tarantino? Don't act in your movies. Yeah. That's <laughs> please, for the love good... of God, please stop. Yeah. Because um, the only person who drops the N-word besides Sam Jackson in this movie is Tarantino. Is Tarantino. Uh, I'm looking up. I rest my case. Uh, and he plays a safe slaveholder in Django Unchained. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Eric Stoltz. Uh, many people but have hey, mentioned He blows this. himself up, so it's fine. <laughs> I got a crude sense of humor over my slightly misguided yes. writing. Yeah. Yeah. Womp, womp, womp. That's where I double back on my misunderstood. Maybe he's not mm. misunderstood. Follow, <laughs> following the drug deal and when he shoots up on heroin, I, I want to comment on the driving scenes in this yeah. film because they're not consistent. Some of them are rear okay. projection. Yeah. Some of them are actual driving scenes. Jeff and I literally paused the movie. are like, okay, we're looking at the same thing right now. But right? It's like black and white yeah, he rear does black projection. black and white rear projection. Yeah. And also the same with the Bruce Willis one too, when he was in the taxi cab. But yeah. when Bruce Willis is driving outside of his apartment and he sees Marcellus, that's actual driving yeah. scenes. He Tarantino mm-hmm. wants us to kind of have this surreal look to it. Yeah. And so he uses black and he like, he knew that rear, like, rear projection is very hard to make look great. It but just, it's also cheap. Yeah, just by its yeah. nature, it's very hard to make it look great. Yeah, I wrote down it looks like a poor man's rear projection process. And so like rather they, yeah. than just settle for something that doesn't look great in his movie, he decides, like, what if we just made this an artistic choice and make it black and white? Mm-hmm. And now it, like, it has a pop to it. It has, a, like, a sty- it feels stylistic instead of just shitty rear projection. Right. It, but what is that? What does that prove? What does that serve the film for? Well, because I, I also have an issue with it, too. Mm-hmm. And my issue with it was because... When I first saw it was when uh, Vincent was driving while high. I thought, oh, this is like some sort of yeah. allegory for him being like really high while driving. Because like the car isn't moving, but the background is not. It's in black and white, but yeah. it's like really grainy and out of focus. But then when the Bruce Willis post-boxing match taxi drive scene happens, yeah. he's not like on drugs mm-hmm. or anything. He's just won a boxing match but it's the same black and white shitty rear projection. Mm -hmm. So I wonder like what then was the artistic choice in that? I think the artistic choice in that is that this movie is Pulp Fiction. Fair um, enough. And that there really isn't a point. It just looks interesting. The point is that there isn't a point. Yeah. The point is that there isn't. Oh yeah. Well, I don't know. I, 
to me, that's just kind of lame considering there are so many things here that like, oh, Royale with cheese, it means nothing, but it has so much more like flair to it mm. than just a really shitty rear projection. And I, I mean, there's some things about the lighting in this movie that I also have mm. quarrels with. And especially in the rear projection, like there's in poor man's process, the biggest thing is lights are moving yeah, and mm. you have to physically do that with like grips, electrics and stuff. Yeah. And, and, and they decided to keep the edge light consistent. So you've got these right. like street lights passing by, but then their there's, hair is lit up the entire time. And there's no refraction or anything that's passing by on their faces to reflect the street lights passing in the background. There are, but it, it's specifically their edge light, the light coming from behind them. Which oh, in, in general wouldn't really happen because the lights are passing through. So it becomes an edge light, key light, and then, you know, it, it goes away. Kind of in like a string of, of moves here. But if you look at yeah. if you look at it and are being critical like me. And for like nowadays, what you see on like poor man's process and like sound stages are grips with C-stands and quasars that they're just spinning in circles to like mimic that. And yeah, or this, mirrors. Yeah. yeah, or mirrors or anything mm-hmm. like that. And this, it just feels like not and that. I, because there's some excellent driving stuff. I mean, a lot of the driving stuff is a lot of the same shot structure. Yeah. Which is something I also had a little bit of a quorum with. But also, it's not the biggest part of the film, so it's really nothing. My my thing about what I think it comes down to is we're coming at this from a film person perspective. Whereas Tarantino had never worked on a film set prior to directing. And so his he just like... To all this, he does, he's not thinking like key lights and all that stuff. He's just like... Yeah, let's just make a black and white in the background. It'll look kind of cool. I don't know, but he had a seasoned DP with him. He's just like, yeah, throw a light behind him. It'll look cool. And the DP's like, that doesn't make sense. He's like, it'll look cool. I I would argue the DP made those choices. Mm -hmm. I don't think Tarantino's worrying about his edge lights. Mm Mm-hmm. At least not at this stage. He's probably not. No, probably not. No. And then he has the legs of like Robert Richardson in the future, who who I've been told is a bit of a hothead as well. So you you don't push around Tarantino. You certainly don't push around Rob Richardson. Mm-hmm. But this DP, I think you and I discovered during the, sh- the, oh, yes. the movie that he also worked with Travolta. Yeah. Uh, We're going to actually talk about future. this DP again in the future. Uh, in he directed two movies. He uh, DP'd two more Travolta movies. Uh, I Am Wrath and Speed Kills. <sighs> yeah. So we'll be discussing yeah. those in the 2010s. Oh, man. Yeah, so this DP and Travolta go way back. <laughs> go way back. <laughs> it's crazy. And at that point, I, I admit, I kind of formed a poor opinion of this <laughs> DP because of that. Even though he shot Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown, you know, all the early Tarantino films. Um, but I don't think this movie is lit very well. mm that's kind of my main thesis is at least a DP in this room, but only because a lot of it is unnaturalistic and going back to the, the, the poor man's process, reverse projection, <laughs> mm. driving scene, uh, some of the, some of the lighting decisions there don't make sense in the yeah. universe, but Interesting. that's just really lame talk. I bet we can <laughs> just continue on with this much more enjoyable movie mm. than not making it to be. So he goes, he arrives at Marcellus and Mia's house. Marcellus and Mia's house. That's when we get the Travolta yeah. wandering yeah. around Travolta. meme. Which I knew I had to throw in the thumbnail. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, we get, he, he's like, yeah, I'm here to pick you up. <laughs> and she's like, make a drink. And that's where we get the, the tight tight close close-up shot of the lips, of the lips. and it's mm-hmm. like the intercom yeah yeah look I mean, over the, by the fireplace the insert work in tarantino's films is also is always just phenomenal and i don't say phenomenal inserts very often and yeah i like that that shot that you mentioned like it sets up the stakes of the scene 
Yeah. Because this scene is about Travolta trying to simultaneously make her happy but not sleep with her lest he get thrown out of a building. Yeah. She's a very sensual person. And the shot is just her lips hovering over a phallic object really close and the t- and it's a really tight shot oh. establishing this is what Travol- I didn't know that's what you're this is what Travolta's stakes in this scene are. <laughs> this is this is his threat. Is that the interpretation? I, I, I mean, I guess so. it's a I, interpretation. I think in both moments that I've seen this movie, it always comes off to me. It's like that Mia's a little more careless in her role as Marcellus's wife that Travolta would like her to be. Yeah. So like Travolta's like, hey, like Marcellus asked me to take you out, bring you a good time, and I'm gonna do that. But we're gonna do it the way that Marcellus likes it. Yeah. And she's on the same page as well, and we get that at the end of the at the end of the bit, um, at post heroin overdose. But throughout the middle bit of that, there are some moments when it's tested a few times yeah it's tested a little bit yeah so um but yeah so he they he picks her up they go to jack rabbit slim's diner yes a 50s diner and percent does not exist trolls like i don't think i don't think we should go in there and she's and she says don't be a square and and there's a graphic but but she draws a rectangle (laughs) okay and it literally it very much shows it as a rectangle and it's just so funny where she's like don't be a square but the lines that appear on the screen are very, like, obviously not a square. Well, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Yes. Oh. But oh. I think it's just <laughs> I think it's just another bit Tarantino threw in there. Of, like, it's these characters. Fun. It's, like, setting up how careless these people are. That, like, she'll later, like, snort heroin because she thinks it's coke. Like, she can't even draw the square correctly in this moment. Yeah. Um... Oh yeah, we'll get to that. But yeah, the uh, they walk into Jackrabbit Slims, and Travolta is back in his prime. Yes, oh, yeah. he, the the yeah. Danny Zuko voice slowly kind of comes up, and then the sleeves get shorter, <laughs> the face gets younger, the shirts are tucked, the shirts. <laughs> well, a, his suit jacket turns into a leather jacket. Yeah, Travolta actually said that this was like his favorite scene to shoot because he says. He, uh, I'm trying to find the exact quote, but he said, like, um, he's like, it was interesting for me, uh, not to be egotistical, but to say I was a living legend walking through what was essentially a living legend wax museum from the time that I was famous. He's yeah. trying to claim an entire generation he wasn't even there for, though. True. I get the Saturday night fever, I get the grease, but he wasn't born in the 50s. Oh, he and was he born, was born in, the in the 50s, but he didn't live through the 50s. Right. Those weren't his teenage years. Yeah. His teenage years were... The... I see what he's saying. I see what he's saying. And for him, it's definitely a relic because mm. he had a slump and he's trying to reflect on his good old good old days. And I've read... Um, there's a film critic who has an argument about the scene that uh, Travolta's presence makes it so much better. It's essential to the power of the scene and to the film that Travolta's entire career becomes backstory to the scene where the myth of the movie star who's fallen out of favor but still resides in the memory as the king of disco uh, from Saturday Night Fever. But what does that say about Vincent Vega, my guy? It doesn't say anything about Vincent Vega, but it adds context to the scene as the scene is about Travolta. And I think that's something that Tarantino Mm -hmm. does a lot, where it's even with that outside of the context of the characters. Like Leonardo DiCaprio playing a washed-up actor 
who okay okay you know what i mean yeah. like it's kind of yeah. like and like brad and alongside brad pitt who's a stunt double it's kind of like it points fun onto itself that doesn't have any context to the character within the story but the actor who's playing the role and he does it with sam jackson but it's also sam jackson playing his like bad the, motherfucker the, over the, and over the, and over the, over the tarantino thing has always been that he makes movies about movies yes oh yeah yeah um ding <laughs> And his movies are simultaneously criticism of other movies as much as they are stories that he is telling. Yeah. Like Bruce Lee and Once Upon a Time was apparently an asshole. Mm. <laughs> you know? Um, uh, which oh, yeah, pissed yeah. a lot of people off, but that's Tarantino. Yeah. You know? Um, Gene Siskel actually said that, um, you know, Pulp Fiction, you know, stands with a bunch of other violent watershed moments that shake up a tired, bloated film industry and... Um, make us reflect on how dull other movies had become. He says the gr- the ultimate know. honor for Pulp Fiction is that it criticizes other movies. Mm-hmm. And as such, mm-hmm. I think Travolta's role in this is very much a reflection on his previous work and how he had just become kind of a washed up, not a druggie in real life, but like a character who is kind of just washed up. And if he doesn't change his ways, he's going to wind up in the gutter. Which he does in this movie. Which he does in this movie, but doesn't in real life because he learns his lesson. Well, he... No. It, well, well, he learns his lesson for a little bit. For a little bit. <laughs> he learns his lesson for a few years. Era number three, my lord. Number three. But they sit down. They, have they this, sit down. This very cool chat. She orders a... They sit in a car table. Travolta gets a bloody steak with a vanilla Coke. I very much remembered that because I was like, what? She gets a $5 milkshake. She gets a, a bloody love, burger with a $5 shake. I love that Vincent Vega was just like, I need to know how this $5 <laughs> milkshake tastes. Like, honestly, if Vincent Vega were alive today, which mm-hmm. I'm guessing he would be. But if it, he was a real character alive today, he would be the ones about arguing about minimum wage raising and making like $18 burgers at McDonald's. <laughs> yes. That yeah. would be Vincent Vega. That would be Vincent because Vega. Because yeah. this movie, he's like, $5 for milkshake? That's absurd. And like last week, we paid $20 for two like scoops $22 of ice cream. $22 <laughs> for ice cream cones in new england Correct. i'm glad vincent's dead yeah <laughs> he, he would he, not survive he would not have thrived, <laughs> he would not have modern thrived <laughs> in the modern times um but I, I love that just like all the little character bits in the scene that travolta's nervous because like you said he yeah. can't go too far in either direction yeah and mia's kind of having fun like prodding yeah. and poking him oh, right yeah. Like, she makes him roll her a cigarette, like, even though she has one, she hides it, and then it's like, I'm out. Don't you hate that? Yeah, don't you hate that? Long, uncomfortable silences. <laughs> <laughs> when you can just sit together and shut the fuck up. And she she turns it around because he, he, it's an uncomfortable silence. And she points it out to Travolta, and he gets nervous. That's an uncomfortable silence. And then she's like... I'm going to go powder my nose. You find, out, you find something to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Becca had actually pointed out when we watched that she really liked that the... Um, when she goes into the bathroom, there's a bunch of women actually powdering their nose. And yeah. she's the one doing coke. Yeah. Yeah, because I she's didn't like, know God she was damn, about... God damn. Yeah, I did not know she was about to do a line Someone of coke. say they have coke out there. Jack, stay in the room, please. <laughs> God damn it. Jack, Jack just really wanted coke. <laughs> well, okay, so because I hadn't seen this movie before. I did not know she was about to do a line of coke. And yeah. I knew she was going to go dancing with Travolta. I did not know at, at what point that was going to mm. happen. But when she goes, I'm going to go powder my nose, I'm like, I immediately went in my brain like powder or cocaine. I even wrote it down, cocaine or makeup. <laughs> And, and then when it was like both in the bathroom, I was just like, oh, this is good. Yeah. That's a good line. That's, That's a funny. good bit. That's funny. Um, I like 
my favorite thing in this scene is that uh you know my like life idol richard nixon is the announcer at the uh <laughs> <laughs> the dance uh wait a minute for the record people she, he does not approve of richard nixon neither does um, this podcast it, or myself is it richard nixon yeah, or it, is it, it Jim, oh, jimmy um, it is richard nixon I thought it was. Look um, at the nose prosthetic the dude's wearing. It is Richard. It is Richard yeah. Nixon. But why does it make? I'm not a crook. Why well, does it make sense with like the fifties? He was the vice president. But like Richard, he Nixon ran for wasn't, president. He wasn't an icon until he was an icon. He, he was the presidential candidate in the fifties. But he didn't become an icon until Watergate. Would you though. consider Bernie Sanders an icon right now? For different reasons. No, he ran for president and he's a senator. Richard Nixon. Would was you a, rub a man's feet? <laughs> if you can if you consider that richard nixon was an icon in the 50s and 60s there's even that line in greece where they're like that that nice vice president nixon oh don't don't try and quiz I'm, jeff on nixon i promise you you will not win nixon it's just like it's a weird image to, to put marilyn monroe and richard nixon side by side yes it's a weird that's a weird one for me like i'm like really are these two the like most equated like icons figures like you're gonna put somebody um, i don't know oh jeff is really gonna school you now oh here we go wait that's uh, not richard nixon that's not i was trying to find a picture of marilyn monroe and richard nixon together yeah. uh but one does not eventually exist. they there's end a picture up... of him in elvis that's funny <laughs> they eventually uh. end up on the stage yes they wind up on the stage because mia wants to dance in the competition she says i will win that trophy or you're going to be in trouble. And Benson is very uncomfortable. And so he gets on stage, which funny and enough. And he gets very comfortable. Well, I was say. in the IW trivia of this, um, Uma Thurman was actually very nervous about this scene because she knew John Travolta had a dancing background. Yeah. And so I think she was like asking him for advice. And he's like, just shut up and like go with it. It's like something Aww. along the lines that he said. That's kind of cool. Just shut up and move with it. And then I would I would dance with John Travolta. And also, there is a behind the scenes. There is behind the scenes footage of this Mm -hmm. of the of when they're filming the scene. Tarantino's like showing them the dance, like behind the camera. Tarantino Travolta also picked a lot of his dance moves for this scene. Um, Mm. I found this quote where um, Quentin recommended the twist. Remember Travolta, and I said, "Well, little Johnny Travolta won the twist contest when I was eight years old, so I know every version." But you may add other novelty dances that were very special in the day. Tarantino asked, what do you mean? Travolta said there was the Batman, the Hitchhiker, the Swim, as well as the Twist. So he showed him to them, and he loved them. Uh, and then he said, I'll teach Uma the steps, and when you want to see a different step, call it out. So Tarantino was on the dance floor with them, and Travolta would just do one of the dances, and whenever Tarantino wanted to shift it, he would tell him, shift it to this, and Travolta would just immediately adjust. you imagine just being the camera operator for that scene, and you just hear like Tarantino like, all right, the Batman. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're doing something different. It's like, the fuck? What's going on? But that's, that's kind of the thing. Like, the conversation that they're having is basically a conversation about conversation, about mm. si- silences or whatever. This is where I was like, oh, this is just verbose, kind of like chit-chatty, but not a natural conversation that two people, especially Vincent Vega. I would assume maybe Mia would have, mm. but like not, not Vincent Vega. But then he's like, oh, I don't, I don't want to dance. Um, mm. the way he dances is not the way that someone who says I don't want to dance dances. Well, he I think it is because he knows he's good at dancing, and he knows that he'll be really attractive to Mia if he dances. Is that reaching? I don't think it's reaching. <laughs> I think he does I think not. It's a little reach. I think he knows that if he gets up on that dance floor, it's going to escalate things, and it does. A little Saturday Night Fever because the it's, the dancing <laughs> just fades out. 
Like, there's no end. Like, they don't win the trophy there. It fades to black, and then we cut to them back at well, the house. Well, it's because the Puerto Rican couple wins, Jeff. And he... <laughs> <laughs> Good call out. Um, but they, they cut back to the, the house, and they have the trophy. Yeah. And they're all very drunk, very yes. high. And Mia, like, rests in the control. like, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And then there's just an intercut between... Travolta giving himself a pep talk. He's giving himself a pep talk. <laughs> yeah, one drink. While Mia's in there snorting heroin and like having an overdose. Snorting his heroin that he got from uh, drug dealer Steve. Yes. I don't know his name his... is Lance. I looked it up. Okay. Eric Schultz is playing Lance. Lance. Drug dealer Lance. Jeff yes. Bridges. And Jeff Bridges. The, the dude. dude. Uh, the dude. Yeah. Um, but he comes out and he's like, now Mia, I had a great night. And, and it's just this shot of her like on yeah. the ground, yeah. nose bloody, yeah. vomiting her mouth, mm-hmm. breaking bad style, basically dead. Yes. Not quite dead, but and so on he, the verge. He picks her up and runs out to his car. And then we cut to Eric Stolch just like sitting down watching a cartoon. <laughs> the dude. <laughs> just doing the dude. Uh, and he gets like phone call. He's eating cereal, cereal. Yeah. at night. And Charles is like, oh, she's ODing, man. I need help. He's well, like, don't, don't bring, bring her here. here. <laughs> and then he's like, I'm, I'm coming up. I'm coming up. And Aristotle runs to his door. And it's so funny. The yeah. car just like skids across his driveway and crashes, crashes into in. his garage. Trilter runs out carrying He's like, Mia. you know who Marcellus is? Well, this is his wife. And if he die, if she dies and I tell you, you didn't help, it's going to be bad for you. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I also I think it's so funny in this that when they're arguing, Vincent just drops Mia and she's <laughs> 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 like, like, it's these two men who literally could not give less of a care about her life. They're just scared about what it will do to them. To them. Yeah. And it's just showing how little they care about it. They're just dropping her body on the yeah. ground. Like he's looking for his little black medical book yeah. and he's just like spending so much time trying to find this where it's like, <laughs> yeah. like I don't know where you left it. It's like you're not going to find it in here. Just grab the adrenaline shot. Which... I love those moments of chaos where everybody's screaming yeah. and it's yeah. just like, I got to find my black book. The what? My black book. What do you need a black book for? I need it to the thing. Why, but we need the black book. Why do you need a black book? Yeah, so it's like, and there's like those, I think Hateful Eight is also covered in mm. those kinds of moments. And I love them so much because I'm pretty sure it's got to be improv, number mm. one. And and it's just like, uh, and, and the way they choose to cover that scene where he's like, I need my book. All right. And so he runs to another room and we completely leave Vincent Vega and Mia in, in the other room. And we're watching these two, like the drug dealer like couple, like <laughs> complain and scream at each other. There's just so many through a doorway. There's so many details in this scene that I love. Where it's, it is mostly covered in the one shot of like panning back and forth between the guy in his room rustling through the stuff, his wife screaming at him, troll to like shaking me on the ground, and there's like this random girl who's just smoking a bomb behind them all. Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny. I also really like the detail that when they're in the wide shot in the corner of the screen, there's a very prominently placed board game stack. Hmm. And the two games on top, the only ones that are like well lit, are Operation Life. Yeah, when Jeff pointed that out, I, I closed my book. I'm like, I'm done. It's a, <laughs> it's just it's literally just Operation Life in the corner of the scene where they're trying to save her life. It's wow. very good. It's a very good bit of production design. Did not There's another that. little piece of production design that I'll mention later on. Yes, I can't remember what that is. That is something we you. do have to appreciate with Tarantino's films: production design. Oh, is it the mise en scène? <laughs> Moose in scene. <laughs> moose in scene. <laughs> moose in the scene. moose in scene. There is though some really rough handheld work in this scene. Really rough handheld operating. Here's, and I, here's I, the, I, the shot. Yeah, the two board games. Oh uh, well, and they are prominently lit too. Yeah. Yeah. Operation yeah. Life. Yeah, it's it's like at some point a camera shadow is seen actually too. Interesting. Yeah, like when the the dude is in the room and they 
they yell at each other. He's like, get out of my way. And he goes like really close in front of the camera. The, you can see the shadow of the camera on his chest mm. as he walks past. Yeah. And so it just, for me, like the handheld there was just like really rough, really, really shaky. And obviously you're like, oh, it's an intense scene or whatever. But really like there's difference between controlled chaos and and something that just looks really rapidly put together really like they have two hours left in their day and it's just like grab a camera let's fucking i don't want to assume that they necessarily were just like letting it go by the wayside but there was definitely something a little odd there yeah yeah especially the camera shadow and the distance to this yeah anyway interesting yeah so then they have the adrenaline shot Yes, uh, the adre- oh, and she yeah. shoots up. Like, do you have a magic marker? <laughs> I need to mark a spark. Pen. Where's the heart? You need to jam it through the breastplate. And that's <laughs> the, you guys just, that's so the I first stab her time. three times. No, just stab her once. <laughs> that's the first time that random woman, the dark-haired woman yeah. in the in the room, finally perks up and she's smiling. She's just like, whoa. <laughs> this is so interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. And then immediately, stab Mia comes back yes. to life. Yeah. Cut to them in the car looking completely like slobbered yeah yeah um i think she could do a really good uh mia post overdose costume uh Why? for the record the audience i do not do crack cocaine no i think it would be a good costume oh, okay <laughs> for you. i think it'd be funny um context i have bangs like nobody's business yeah well, uh, no. <laughs> well you've great you great bangs <laughs> oh i meant like mia okay yeah. whatever um but they gross get, they, they get back to <laughs> the house um Oh, and earlier in the scene when they're in the diner, Mia is describing this pilot she acted in. Oh, um, yeah. Well, that was also described in the Vincent Jules. Yeah. That never too. got picked up for series. And it was it's essentially the plot of Kill Bill. <laughs> um, right. Um, but she says every episode, I'm going to tell a joke. Uh, but she doesn't want to tell Geralta the joke. Uh, as a thanks for saving her life, even though he kind of also nearly killed her, um, she tells him the joke. And it's um, uh, two tomato, three tomatoes are walking down the street and a little one gets stuck behind and the daddy tomato turns around and says hey catch up well he squashes it he squashes, oh, he squashes him up. and says catch, catch up. up yeah and he's like all right i'm mm. gonna go home and have yeah. a heart attack now and then <laughs> we cut to the next sequence i'm i'm interested i'm gonna pose this to you too i have a friend who i was just when i logged this movie on my letterbox i just was like what of my friend what do my friends think of this movie i think of whole fiction and one of them has a review where he's like the movie should have ended right there if you what? want to make a movie that's very textually about nothing, the first scene has no payoff, and which is just Tim Roth like <laughs> describing the movie. You then get a great sequence where they hold up those guys. You get the they hand off the briefcase so that they walk in with different costumes. Makes no sense. And then you get this entire like Mia sequence, which serves as the climax of the movie, and ends with her telling a joke that has no point. Okay, but. The the movie doesn't necessarily have to explain even with mm. the ending it doesn't explain everything going mm. on it doesn't explain why they're robbing a bank mm. it doesn't explain how these people became hitmen it doesn't explain why Marcellus is it, such an ass yeah. like and and his argument is more that the movie lags a little bit after that and that seems like a perfect like seventy minute electric like mm. movie that first seventy because after that it's the Chris Walken yeah. watch up the I ass put my ass <laughs> put this watch. Up his ass. I mean, it's basically Bruce Willis from there on. They're like, eh, yeah, eh. <laughs> don't need it. Yeah. Then, I mean, half of that uh, storyline with Bruce Willis is in a motel. Yeah, with, yeah. Um, talking about pop bellies. Talk about pop bellies. Um, I do like his girlfriend. She's fun. Mm. Uh, yeah. Stuart, what what time are we at? <laughs> we are at an hour and forty five. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Uh, let's get cooking. Let's get cooking. <laughs> Another three hours to go. <laughs> well, you knew this was going to be a two-hour yeah. podcast. We knew this would be a long episode. Yeah. It had to be. Yeah. Well, we have um, Becca here with us yeah. to talk about cinematography and lighting stuff, which is very interesting. Which is very dense for a movie like this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, the next scene is a single... It, people talk about great one-scene performances. They don't talk about great one-shot performances. Because <laughs> Chris Walken has one shot in this movie. Yeah. He just walks into a room. He's like, hey, sport. There's I one was thing. in the POW camp with your dad. There's, that's bad. I'm sorry. I, I will mention one dense thing about this scene that's about a man shoving a watch mm. up his ass is that the fact that Chris Walken is frame center frame and you had mm. told me this scene oh. is like done out in one in one shot and he's center frame yep at the beginning his, his eye line is to the left and then yeah. when he starts talking about that watch, watch and, and going up the ass going up the ass his eye line is right <laughs> dead center basically into the camera <laughs> His eyeline shifts. It feels like yeah. Christopher Walken is like talking to you. <laughs> he's like, yeah. He's like, your dad. <laughs> I shoved his watch up my ass. <laughs> I've had this watch. He shoved his watch up his ass, and then I shoved that watch up my ass. <laughs> I, I know I'm not I the first one to mention that, to but you. I was. I just thought that's so yeah. fun, and it, and it's a way to make a one shot very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, we then cut to Bruce Willis holding the watch in his hand oh no he doesn't have the watch in his hand but it's established he was the kid who christopher Walken. He w- wakes up like it's a nightmare yeah like the ass watch story <laughs> christopher Walken keeps coming to him in the night <laughs> and he just whispers the watch up my ass <laughs> up my ass <laughs> but yeah so then he's at a, at a boxing match yes and this was uh sort of alluded to earlier in the vincent um uh, jules storyline afterwards mm. where it's that long shot on bruce willis that that's what he's asking him to do is yeah. to throw a fight for uh, the money bruce willis has too much pride he does not throw the fight he wins uh he runs the he, guy to a pulp yes kills him kills him and his and his son who gets in a chemical accident and his eyes become blind oh, this is a daredevil bit and then he becomes a superhero to which case he finds marcellus wallace Still operating. He finds his ass. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my god! I was not expecting the Daredevil bit, but um, is that because the guy who plays Marcellus plays Wilson Fisk? No, no, <laughs> two no. That's two different black guys. That's the Green Mill guy. Yeah. Green Mill. Oh my god. <laughs> the Green. Oh my god. The Green Mile. Green Mile. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> it's no. almost hour two. It's almost hour two. <laughs> we're all but, very loopy it's like raining heavily outside yeah i was gonna it's say very... i can hear it in my headphones <laughs> yeah. of the rain so for the audience if you heard like some background wash noise that's because it's raining very heavily in yeah, chicago right now chicago decided to drop two tornadoes uh in this past week yes yeah it really has been two tornadoes this past week yeah anyway anyway but um bruce so Wills runs off he's immediately on the run he has to mm-hmm. hop in a cab mm-hmm. and he's with a very weird cab driver he's yes. very interested in learning about what it's like to kill a man i want a movie about her well there might actually already be one. Oh yes be- do you know this bit i this read trivia it this bit? morning um so the actress who plays the cab driver this is another one of those that you wouldn't know about the context of her character but the context of her as an actress and what role she's played and she plays a role i believe in a tv series jeff is that right it was a um, short film that was turned into a feature film after this movie in which she essentially plays like 
Um, like a, a, a sat cleanup crew assassin or something like yeah, that? Yeah, she's like someone hunting down serial killers. Oh, my God. This movie, and the movie was uh, produced by Tarantino. And okay. so that whole bit with the cab driver was like intentional. It was an that, homage to her that. short film. Yeah. That wow. then they turned into a feature after mm-hmm. this movie. So she's essentially playing the same role. Yeah. In all three of them. Well, I was about to say I want a movie with her and I have one. Yeah, Amazing. Mm-hmm. It's called Curdled. Uh, check it out online. Oh my God. Um, it's at this point that Willis goes to this motel and there's a lot of stuff in the motel. Yes. This is, I thought the mo- I thought it was the least interesting in my opinion. Yeah. Cause he's just like hiding and that's all they're doing yeah. is they're just hiding. He, he just talks with his girlfriend about like how she wants a pot belly and wants to eat blueberry pancakes and how he's like, and he's just like, yeah, baby. Yeah. I'm Bruce Willis. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't do anything for me besides I think his girlfriend's charming. Yes. She's, she gives a really nice performance in these scenes. Yeah. She's very Fabian. Fabian. That's, Fab, uh, Fabian, that's the character name. Um, mm. I don't know the actress's the, name. There's one really good bit in this scene um, where Bruce Willis is in the shower. And uh, you've seen the Simpsons movie. You know that part where like Bart is on the is riding the um, the skateboard nude? And they just go to this, <laughs> like complicated level to, to have everything cover up his dick? Yeah. In this scene, Bruce Willis is doing that. He's always covered by like a towel or like someone's hand or like Fabian walks by right as he does mm-hmm. until the final moment where you see like a flash of his dick. <laughs> it literally is like the Simpsons movie scene. It's so strange. Uh, <laughs> Bruce Willis, we see your dick in this movie. Yes, we do. You know, Bruce Willis had a past in porn. Yes. Oh, I didn't. I was just making that up. Oh, oh no, yeah. wait, never mind. I'm thinking of Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, Sylvester uh, Stallone had a pass in porn. I'm oh, of, I'm Bruce shocked by Bruce, both. Bruce okay. Willis did not have a yeah, pass in Bruce porn. Bruce Willis, my bad. I was, I randomly responded because I was thinking of Stallone. Yeah, come on. I'm good, I'm good at this. <laughs> oh, God. So, okay, so you after the hotel, what, right. so what the, happens after the motel? In the, the inciting incident for the, rem, for the remainder of the Bruce Willis storyline is... The watch isn't there. Yeah. Because mm. he, he, like, tells Fabian, he tells Fabian earlier before the fight, because I think he already knows he's not going to throw it, Yeah, um, to pack up all their things. And he tells her specifically to not forget the watch. Yeah. Um, but it's like night, it's like day two or day three in the motel. And he's actually starting to look for it. And he can't find it. And that's when he starts throwing shit around. And he gets really angry at Fabian. And he's like, I specifically told you to remember to get the fucking yeah. watch and all that stuff. So it's at this point that um, Butch, that's Bruce Willis's yeah. character name. Um, besides, he's going back to their apartment. He's like, probably hitmen there. Even though he's being hunted down by hitmen and all that stuff. Yeah, so he and goes, he's not even like real sneaky about it either. <laughs> not really. Through the front door. Yeah. <laughs> well, and there's a really cool like steady cam shot that just follows him from the car all the way up into like his apartment. It's just, like a really long steady cam shot hmm. that um, follows him from behind and like. Yeah, he's not being sneaky about it. He's, he's remarkably sneaky in that he parks two blocks away, you know, tied his car, but then walks straight in through the front door of his mm-hmm. building. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then conveniently finds a Uzi with a yeah. silencer on it. Well, he finds the watch first. Oh, yeah. And then he, he finds find a gun. And then he finds the Uzi with the silencer. And then there's a toilet flush, which is a thematic motif in um, Pulp Fiction that whenever Vince Vinga goes to the bathroom, something bad happens. Oh, so I've, I think the I first time it, yeah. was in the first M- bit. Mia Odis. Mia Odis. The second time he is dies. a Bruce Willis, and that's when he dies. And mm-hmm. the third time is when he's in the bathroom at the 
breakfast the diner. diner. Yeah. So every time Vincent goes to the bathroom, something bad happens. Yeah. So wow. there's a toilet flush, door opens, it's Vincent, John mm-hmm. Travolta. Bruce Wills murders him. Bo- oh. Like fills him up with bullets. I did not know this happened, so mm. this one really shocked me. Yeah, you me were very surprised when that happened. I was like, oh. <laughs> I, it was like Christoph Waltz all over again. Mm. I'm just, oh, so sad. Just kills the dude. And Travolta is the one guy in this movie who could not be redeemed. He just like kind of stuck to his drug in. And, uh, Are you saying he rejected salvation? Essentially, yes. Yeah. Well, he, he, took, a, he took the salvation of that's essentially Ron Hubbard. What, what is a miracle? <laughs> that's essentially what Sam Jackson's doing at the end. And yeah. Travolta doesn't get it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he kills John Travolta and then Butch gets in a car and he's heading out. He's got the watch, and that's when he finds no other than Marcellus, Marcellus Wallace. Wallace. <laughs> walking away from his car like cupcakes or donuts. The or street. Yeah, that good. just rams through the fucking guy <laughs> and then gets in a car accident himself. Marcella, Kathy Griffin's there. Kathy, Kathy Griffin's there. Yeah. Um, Marcellus She's Wallace. holding Trump's severed head. Oh, God. <laughs> Time traveling. Time traveling. Um, and she plays herself in the yeah. credits that says Kathy Griffin as herself. Which it's is such a strange. Confusing. Like, I I'm honestly curious if she was just walking down the street and saw the filming and yeah. Tarantino's like, hey, be in this. I watched a movie recently where that actually happened, where an actor was walking down the street and they end up cameoing in the movie. Oh, uh, Spider Man Two nope. with uh, Willem Dafoe, because that's what <laughs> happened there. <laughs> no, um, in the. Oh, hop- you don't know the story. Sp- You're gonna have to tell me after. Okay, well, I'm gonna tell you now. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Spider-Man, Everyone knows Willem Dafoe, Green Goblin, Spider Man One. Yes. Willem Dafoe was in New York City while they were filming Spider-Man 2. And they were filming the final scene with Harry Osborn, like having like his little um, surprise moment that he finds out Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Willem Dafoe sees the film crew filming. He finds out it's the Spider-Man crew with Sam Raimi. <laughs> that very moment, they decide to plug him into the scene and add him in as... Uh, the spirit of the Green Goblin. Spirit of the Green Except Goblin. Really explained how that works in the movie. If it's just a vision of Harry or if he's actually the curse of the Green Goblin. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, so that scene was, they just added that with Willem Dafoe because he was walking in New York one day and found the production of Spider-Man 2. We watched The Holiday, the uh, the Nancy Myers film with Jack Black and uh, a lot of other people in it. Um, Dustin Hoffman was actually walking by the set of that movie. Oh. Um, And he's like, what are they doing? And they're like, you want to be in the movie? Yeah, and so, so the, he shows up in the background. They talk about The Graduate, and they're like, oh, yeah. that's a good film. Jack he's Nich- like in the background. Jack Nicholson's like, that song from The Graduate. He is to you. The way Jack Black does. And then, yeah. then the background, Dustin Hoffman's Jack Nicholson like, a second ago. someone say my name. Jack, stay in the room, please. This is this guy. I lent myself to that one. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so... So he runs Marcellus over. Marcellus is the first one to wake up. There's a lot of people like helping him up. He sees the car that Bruce Willis wrecked. Bruce Willis is also... They're all kind of like wounded and shaky, but Marcellus gets up. He pulls out his gun, just starts shooting, hits Kathy Griffin. Uh, no, it hits a different woman. Or it hits a different Kathy woman. Kathy Griffin. And this, she's, this she's very like reservoir dog style like i was gonna say it's very reminiscent grimy gunfight where like it's these two dudes who have been presented as like high status badasses throughout the movie mm-hmm. uh now just being like pathetic like injured limping around as they shoot guns at each other yeah it's a very tarantino thing to like deconstruct a like badass fight scene and make it extremely not badass yeah um in the end and kind of show like the pointlessness of it or whatever yeah 
But they stumble into a, uh, a like antique shop. It's like a pawn. A yeah, pawn. There's like guns in it. There's a really fun detail on the outside. Chainsaws. I thought it was fun. There's a sign, neon sign on the outside that says we sell watch batteries. Um, the thing that the whole thing is about is about a watch, and it's essentially like Bruce oh. Willis gets like revived by this sequence. <laughs> he gets a fresh lease on life. Like he gets his watch batteries in this scene. <laughs> I think I think that's fun. That yeah. is that is fun. Maybe that isn't. That, I, maybe that's I think not that's a actually. Pr- I moment. think that's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, there's a piece of production design that I didn't pick out, but I was going to pick out something in this scene. Mm. Is it the uh, neon? The other neon sign? Yeah, the other okay, neon yeah. sign. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to go for that. Well, I don't know. I don't know if we're getting too far ahead because they oh. get inside the store and they start really beating each other, and the guy in the front desk like kidnaps them yes okay he holds a shotgun and kidnaps them and ties them up in the basement with like and they wake up they're gagged ball gagged yeah but the sign upstairs uh was for skilled something yeah but the letters are blurred out so it says kill ed and then zed comes in interesting and i don't know if there's anything to it part of me thinks there's got to be something to it because i don't think his name is is his name zed or ed it's oh, Zed. Crap. So it's it's either kill Zed, like, and they just didn't have the Z, or it's just killed. Hmm. Or it's just killed. Yeah. Either one. Um, Something I just... When they wake up in a basement, they're both ball gagged. Yeah. Not a good thing to ever wake up when you're unconscious. Yeah. I gotta and say, ain't my worst Tuesday the, night. Of all the ways that you could wake up from mm-hmm. being knocked out, being ball gagged is probably one of the worst ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so going into this scene, I, both with Reservoir Dogs... I've only seen once. I've been told the whole, uh, what is it? The, um, not, what's the song playing? Stuck in, in the res- middle with you. Stuck in the middle. And then this scene are like some of Tarantino's like most violent. Yeah. After both, I don't know what people are talking about. For the time they for were. For the time. For the, they were really shocking. Tarantino just, these movies kind of changed the paradigm of violence in cinema. Yeah. So that nowadays they, they feel very tame to us. Mm-hmm. But for the moment where like people were existing in a very like PG thirteen world, yeah, this guess... is post eighties too. Yes, yeah, you know, and LA is probably in the nineties. This is still like the war on drugs is going yeah. really hard because we just shifted from crack to heroin at this point. Yeah. And so I think uh, the desensitization of violence on screen was still happening. Yeah, but Tarantino like went. But he pushed uh, it. Two bumps out yeah, ahead. Yeah, I guess of what the opening the door and seeing two grown men like rape another grown man. Yeah. I guess in a, in a I mean, fashion for me to deliverance say, it wasn't did even it. that violent. Yeah. What well, year did Deliverance come out? So that's the 70s. Yeah, that was the 70s. And that was a very graphic man on man rape scene. Yeah, I mean, the 70s were unhinged. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of unhinged. like canceled movies of, from that era. Yeah. I yeah. mean, even in the '90s, but I, okay, I guess yeah. But I was I was picturing like torture scene. Mm. Hey, you um, got a pretty mouth. <laughs> <laughs> like prolonged <laughs> torture scenes that I've seen in other films that are yeah. far more graphic. The, and these, now we just have torture porn yeah. films. The, yeah, these total. are these are the movies that kind of open the door to that. That's yeah. fair. Because yeah. I mean, like, Inglorious Bastards, I think has far more violent moments, mm. and people don't talk to it like they yeah. talk Hitler, about it like, like they do Reservoir Dogs. In a pool of blood. Yeah. Well, and they carve a guy's forehead. Yeah, you know? which is a really hard sequence to watch. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they're tied up, all gagged, yeah. and... Uh, cop, Zed the cop shows up. Zed the cop shows up. They get um, the gimp. They get the gimp. <laughs> it's like a guy in, like, a tight leather outfit. Um, who they keep in a box. They keep in a box. Who was, uh... 
Joel Schumacher's uh, inspiration for Bane a couple years later. <laughs> Batman Gosh, <laughs> and he doesn't have that voice. Then. No, he's just like. No, Rrr. he's just a brute. Yeah. <laughs> he's just like. Um, yeah. So. Kill the bat. What's the Gimp's point? The he's just they he, they just have him watch. He's like their their object. They use him when they don't. It's have, like an intimidation scheme. They use him when they don't have like fresh, um, like victims. Feels like the gimp. The gimp feels like a reek in Game of Thrones. For like, they just kind of, yeah, use him. Yeah. Sorry, Beck and I are picking up some background chatter. Oh, are you guys hearing that background chatter? Yeah, a little bit of background chatter. Yeah. This is our best sounding episode yet. <laughs> Man, I'd imagine this in our old apartment, but here. Mm. So you can hear, I mean, we have headphones on, you don't, so. It's probably not that much, because, you know. Mm. Yeah. I'm sure I guess we, we'll cut this part out. I could probably yeah. take it out. Okay. I suppose whenever we don't have a guest, we can stick in that room where it's a lot quieter. Uh, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. But, um. So, yeah, they get the gimp out, and then they drag. Ving Rames. Oh, uh, yeah, Ving Mar- Rames plays Marcellus Wallace. We haven't even said Ving Rames this episode yet. <laughs> I didn't know yeah. that was his name. <laughs> but they drag Marcellus Wallace into the room, and they close the door. Yeah. And, uh butch who is still like tied up and ball gagged with the gimp alone yeah successfully breaks out of successfully his breaks out of his bindings murders the gimp with one punch um, yeah uh, he does well the the gimp then hangs yeah by his neck he like punches so. him with his body i mean he killed a guy earlier so like it yeah, makes fair sense enough. fair enough but he kills the gimp he's and then on the upstairs. verge of escaping and then somehow develops a conscience. Yes. And decides. He gets redemption. Maybe I shouldn't let Marcellus Wallace get raped. And it's this really funny sequence. Where he looks for a weapon. Oh, what, yeah. what does he grab first? A hammer. And uh, then. A baseball, baseball bat. bat. And then. He looks at a chainsaw. <laughs> and then. A katana. <laughs> <laughs> he finds a katana. Yeah. Samurai sword. <laughs> he just. When it, it was kind of toying with my impression of what the scene was going to be, too, yeah. because I thought it was going to be like this ultra-violent, bloody limbs. I was you know? kind of hoping the chainsaw was going to be So there. when he pulled the chainsaw, I'm like, oh, this Here is actually going to be it. Here and we then, go. I mean, even the katana, like 100%. Yeah, but katana it's violence? Very tame. Then he, he becomes a I don't a know. Samurai. Kill Bill had to go black and white because of all the blood. Well, I just meant for Pulp Fiction. For, oh. the, for the, this particular scene, because he like does one like slice on the guy's front yeah. torso, which has a little bit of blood, and then he stabs him like from behind, but yeah. we it's off yeah. camera. Yeah, and then he we there is a shotgun blow to the to Zed's groin. Yeah, but like that's very obs- obscure. I'm never know. I'm never really bothered by gunshot wounds. Yeah, I'm gonna go medieval on his ass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, he's about to do uh, G- uh, Gerard Gerard uh, Butler from Law Abiding yeah. Citizen on his ass, <laughs> <laughs> uh, inject him with porcupine venom and adrenaline yeah. to keep from passing out. Um, oh my! That's my. That's the probably the best torture scene in terms of like, in terms of like, if you wanted to watch a movie to like educate on how to best torture somebody, Law Abiding Citizen Gerard Butler. What about Princess Bride? They lay it all off for you. <laughs> I just took 10 years off your life. Anyway, I'll, sorry. <laughs> alternatively, if you want to see something that's actually like gross, uh, Zero Dark Thirty is a way that they, uh, they show it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's pretty intense. Yeah, and what? It. Zero Dark Thirty. It's like oh, actual yeah. Guantanamo that's like it's Bay. Actual like when it's torture. real, real yeah. life torture that yes. we've yeah. done because the, America is the best country in the world. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> wow. 
How did we uh, get here? Okay. Um, so he he walk he kicks the door open and Zed is mid rape yes. on Marcellus. Yeah. And he he kills them all with the katana. He, well, he kills the one guy with oh, the yeah. katana, and then uh, Zed is about to go for his gun, and Bruce Willis has a katana. There's that bit where he's like, "Go for it! I want yeah. you to go for it!" Yeah. And then right as he's about to shotgun blast the groin, Marcellus Wallace has a shotgun, which I kind of thought was great homage to the beginning of the movie when it's like we should have had shotguns yeah um, oh. and it's not because they have more guys and they need to kill but simply because they need a bigger firepower yeah. for the punishment <laughs> that needs to be done yeah so yeah shotgun uh shotgun chill to the groin zed is uh discombobulated yeah. and i think is just like to bruce willis he's just like you we cool leave town tonight he's like two things one, we never speak of this to anyone <laughs> ever again. Two, you your LA privileges are revoked. Yeah. <laughs> you leave tonight. But that's the thing we also didn't mention when he's picking out all these weapons. He's slowly making the decision being like, I can get myself out of this whole situation that I'm in if I rescue Marcellus and mm. I can I can run away with my bride. It's not for Marcellus's well being that he saves him. Right. Because of how slow ass. he is pick like as you think for somebody if it changed the dynamic of the relationship, he's probably gonna like rush in first thing that he can grab to try to save someone from being raped. But no, he's methodical about it. Yeah. He's like, let me let this guy get a little bit of raping in. Oh gosh. <laughs> you know? And uh but in the end, it does absolve him of this uh, burden, the hit that Marcellus puts out on um, Butch. So. Yeah, which is a lot more resolution than a lot of these characters get. Yeah, yeah, because he gets on a bike, runs off to the sunset. Yeah, and then he goes to the motel, gets Fabian. Who Fabian's like, "What happened? What happened? Did you get your blueberry pancakes, baby? No, where's, they didn't. Where's happen. my Civic? I didn't do buttermilk. <laughs> they, they didn't have blueberry. <laughs> they didn't have blueberry. I had to do buttermilk. Buttermilk." Uh. Uh, finally get on the chopper. It's on a bike, baby. It's a chopper. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, They're not uh, rocks. They're minerals. They, they ride off into the sunset, both alive, both well. And that's chronologically the end of the movie. It's chronologically yeah. the end of the movie. Yeah. And um, then we get an awesome... Then we the cut, Bonnie situation. Yeah, we cut to the Bonnie situation. Are you ready yeah. for this, Jeff? Yeah. We are two hours in. Oh, <laughs> my This God. is officially our longest episode. It's officially really? our yeah. longest episode. Our longest Woo. episode previously is, I think, Look Who's Talking. Like an, an hour and 50 minutes. Hour 55, yeah. 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 So you've officially beat Mary Grace. Um, <laughs> our longest episode. Yeah. So now we're at the Bonnie situation. Yes. Um, what a great sequence this is. <laughs> um, we're back at the beginning of the movie where it's like Jules is giving his like, And no. they will know. My name is <laughs> when Ze- I lay my vengeance upon thee. Ezekiel twenty five seventeen, which Tarantino made it for this movie, is not a real Bible passage. And Nick Fury's which, uh, headstone. <laughs> yeah, honestly, so funny because we were in New England, Jeff and I, recently, and there was this guy that had a T-shirt that said Ezekiel twenty five seventeen, and me looking for drama, and I'm like, oh, this is probably something about the ways of the world in terms of like media or something, because I just get turned off by it. And so I looked it up, and Jeff watches me look it up because i hadn't seen pulp fiction i didn't know that this was like the bible verse that was part of the movie and the only thing that comes up is an image of sam jackson from the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you, you thought it was like some like uh, anti-mask like yeah. freedom from oppressive government nobody or just puts a bible verse with no context which on would the be t-shirt. even funnier if that guy didn't know that it was <laughs> sam he's like oh a bible verse t-shirt i must have this for my lord and Honestly, savior jesus it was christ just a blue t-shirt yeah. and white lettering Ezekiel twenty five seventeen. So I was ready to fight this man, and then Seb Jackson pulls up in my Google search. Yeah. That was so funny. You yeah. be you, sir. 
So yeah, this is post them killing a bunch of guys in this apartment. Um, and then another guy jumps out of the bathroom, shoots a bunch of bullets at um, Jules and Vincent, misses, misses all, all of them. They shoot him. They shoot him. And it's at this point that Jules is like, this is a miracle from God that we didn't get I hit. need to give up my violent life. Yeah. I'm being given a second chance here. Meanwhile, Marvin is like cowering in the corner. Marvin's they, their contact. Yeah. Oh, really? We didn't. Yeah, we did not discuss Marvin earlier. Uh, he, oh. He's their contact who told them where to find these guys. I Marvin did not know or that. Martin? Marvin. Marvin. I only know that because of how John Travolta says, Marvin, what do you think? <laughs> um, oh. But Sam Jackson's like having an existential crisis. Yeah. They head off into their car and they're driving off. And he's like, this was a miracle. I'm giving up my violent life. I'm going to become a shepherd and walk the earth. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Vincent's like, what the fuck are you talking about? He's like, the bullets missed. It was a fluke accident. And so then John Travolta turns around in the and seat. he's like, Marvin, what do what you, you think? think? <laughs> you think it's like I don't know what I think. You think that God came down and bam, <laughs> Marvin's head explodes. It's a super funny Uncle wi- Bob Urban Cowboy style. <laughs> it's a super oh, wide. Yeah. It's a super wide shot. You just see the back of the car it's just red. <laughs> I think this is top five funniest scenes in any movie. <laughs> For how horrible. Every time I watch it, it cracks me up so. Much watching, just and since I was like, "What the fuck did you do?" He's, he's like, "Oh, a, he's like, whoa, whoa!" <laughs> Best performance for John Travolta when he's like, "What the fuck you do, man?" Oh god, I shot Marvin in the face, why man. The fuck you do that? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't mean to, man. The gun, the gun went just off. went I don't off. Know why. Like, I feel the gun fucking went off. It's like, I'm sorry, man. It's the it's the depravity of the conversation that happens afterwards, especially since Sam Jackson is basically a born again Christian yeah. in that car. <laughs> and, <laughs> He's I like, what What the fuck you got to do that for? Like, <laughs> He's like, Marcel doesn't have any friends in the valley. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, we're driving in the middle of broad daylight here. People got sending notice stuff. Like, it's like trying it's, one guy's brain matter blasting on the window. It's uh, like, I got to call a guy. I know one guy who's just over the hill. Yeah. Uh, cut the funniest thing in that scene, though, is that there's like a very prominent piece of brain matter in Sam Jackson's afro. He's <laughs> just sitting there. Yeah, maybe uh, I take back that this movie isn't violent. <laughs> but they they're in uh, the the kitchen of a one and only Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino playing Jimmy. Jimmy. Okay, uh, okay. I have to mention something because yes. it was bothering me. Given the recent news about Drake Bell, yes. If you close your eyes. In this scene, John No Tarantino sounds just like Drake Bell. Yeah, of course I know how good it is. When when I go shopping, she buys shit. When I go coughing, when I go shopping, I buy the real good stuff. Honestly. It ain't the coffee in my kitchen. I welcome (laughs) you guys to turn the lights off, close your eyes, listen to Tarantino, it sounds like Drake Bell. (laughs) You heard it here, folks. Go to our YouTube channel, go to this YouTube video, type in the comments, hashtag Tarantino was Drake Bell. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is a this is maybe the one good Tarantino performance. Cuz he's just a dude. Yeah. He every he always tries to make himself a badass in movies yeah. and he is incapable of doing From it. From Dusk Until Dawn. Dusk Till Dawn, oh, Django God. Unchained. Yeah. He always tries to make himself a badass and it never works. Um and then in this movie he just lets himself play like a shrimpy like pathetic guy. And he's good at it. <laughs> yeah. He is good at it. So He's then, like, yeah, you look like nerds. <laughs> uh, Jules calls uh, Marcellus, yeah. and Marcellus sends in the cavalry, which is the wolf played yeah. by Harvey, Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel. Um, 
uh, Winston Wolf. Yes, um, which is such a good name. It's such a good name. Um, so Harvey Keitel is like this cleanup yeah, crew like the, guy. Yeah, and it's called the Bonnie situation because Jimmy's wife's <laughs> name is Bonnie, who is a nurse who's going to come home, and if she finds bunch of gangsters there covered in blood and a dead body in the garage and it's not going to be a good time yeah. yeah so harvey Keitel comes over and is discussing like the cleanup situation that they have to do they have 45 minutes so they have to like wipe down the car they have to clean their clothes they have to get a bunch of blankets and quilts and dress up the car to make sure it's not being like noticed um all this while while this is happening um i don't know that's about it that's just yeah. clean up I mean, the wolf says, I'll be there in 10 minutes. And then it cuts to a time card well, that says nine minutes and 54 well, seconds. Well, later. it says, it's a 30-minute drive. I'll be there in 10. And then it, then it cuts yeah, to, like, he gets yeah, there in exactly not, 10 Because he's driving, like, so fast, and he's the wolf. Yeah, know? and he comes in. He's like, all right, you two are going to clean up the car. Jimmy, I need trash bags and linens. <laughs> yeah, a lot of this is a little unnecessary to me. I think Tarantino's yeah. character is completely unnecessary. Like, it, the, the stakes are that his wife is going to come yeah. home and see it. I think the stakes were already set. Sam Jackson was like... We're covered it's in It's in broad daylight. Yeah. Yeah. The I stakes, think I agree 100%. I don't think we need Tarantino's character. I think we just need the stakes and the guy being ultra chill, like super. Like, he's like, I know exactly what to do. Clean up the blood. <laughs> and that's it. Mm. He's I like, think... I'm a master of my craft. Get some towels. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty, the wolf is pretty much just like, yeah, we'll clean it up. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I think it's... If anything, I don't even know if it's for Tarantino, but as much as it's for Harvey Keitel. Because it's like, if you have Harvey Keitel in your movie, it's like, That's true. use him for something. But yeah. it's like, the way they use him here, I agree. It's just kind of like, Harvey Harvey Keitel pretty much blood. started Tarantino's career. Because he like yeah. he got Reservoir Dogs to be made, and then he started in it. Uh, so this feels like kind of a throwing him a bone as a thanks for that last movie he did him a solid on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, so they're all cleaned up. They have new clothes on. Yeah, yeah. It's the Sam clothes. Jackson has dropped the divine intervention for at least a brief moment in time to clean up the brain matter that he <laughs> and they're like was privy yeah, to. You're the one who shot him in the face. You should be cleaning up the gun. <laughs> I'm gonna do the windows. <laughs> this is a really funny argument between. Yeah, them. and then they turn around at the end and they're like, "We loved watching you work." And yeah. like I just mentioned, the 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 wolf, wolf didn't, didn't do work. anything. He didn't <laughs> he do showed anything. Up and just told him, "Yeah, clean the car." Yeah, he showed up in a suit. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It it's, cracks me up. It's so funny. So they ditch the car and then they're in a new vehicle. They get a cab and they go to the coffee Diner. shop from the from beginning. The beginning. And they have a discussion about divine intervention. Yep. Oh Sam Jackson God. says he's going to walk the earth as a shepherd. Um, and then John figure out what his purpose is. And Jeff then, and I for days since we watched this a couple of days ago have been constantly quoting the line of, but because you decided to do this on a transitional point in my life. <laughs> he's, he's like, since you decided to pull this shit on a transitional period in my life. <laughs> that scene, and we might as well just get to it now, because Vincent... Uh, goes to the bathroom. He, go, he takes a yeah. tent to, he goes, he goes to take a shit. And everything, every, whenever he goes to the bathroom, something bad happens, and then cue robbery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, Eli, uh, uh, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer get out their guns. And they're starting to rob the place. Uh, and then all while this is happening, Vincent's in the bathroom. And so Jules is sitting in his booth. Mm-hmm. And they're all like, get your wallets out. And he's making trash bags and all that good stuff. So he goes up to Jules and Jules has his wallet. And he's openly, freely giving him this wallet. But then he asks, what's in the briefcase? Yeah. And um, it's like, I can't tell you what's in the briefcase. It's, it's, telling me I, it's my boss's laundry. Yeah. So your boss sends you out to do your laundry. It's like from time to time. Yeah. 
And so at certain points, like I'm going to count to three. And if you don't show me what's in the case and Jules eventually gives in, he opens the case. It's the gold light shining yeah. into him. And it's like, is that what I think it is? And again, just a gag. We don't really know what it is. Um, somewhere in between there and like Jules gets the jump on him with his gun. Yeah. So he has a gun like pointed at his neck and he's obscured and um, honey bunny is standing up on top of the booth. <laughs> She's screaming. <laughs> screaming. And what I really love about the scene is how Jules mentally tears down Honey Bunny. Because yeah. she starts off as like, you take that gun off. Yeah. She's like, he's like, like it's all right, Honey Bunny. Like, like in control. Yeah. And then by the end of the scene, she's like crying and like yeah. saying, like, I, I have to pee. Yeah. I want to go like, home. Like just the way he mentally destroys her without mm-hmm. even like, pointing a gun at her at all like and he's being calm he's like tell her it's gonna be all right like, yeah well even tim rolf's character like he has he's all got this all big man energy he's got the gun and all of a sudden sam jackson gets the gun from him pulls it on him and he's just like oh like the like the rest of the day and so much so that they they walk out with not without the briefcase and they just kind of walk out and be like oh man they walk I guess out another failed. yeah they and yeah. sam jackson says he's trying to be the, the shepherd of evil men and he's doing that and like ushering them into a better life Oh wow, well, that's beautiful. Yeah, that, <laughs> that that's the that's what he does. And so then his wallet has "bad motherfucker" written on it. His wallet. Yeah. Vincent at some point pops out of the. You're bathroom. not gonna do a goddamn thing. <laughs> 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 and then Honey Bunny and uh, Pumpkin leave. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Vincent, Jules, we should probably go. They and they leave. leave to triumphant music. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah, it's the end yeah. of the movie. Yeah. Wow, there's Pulp. a lot of chatter going on. A lot on. of chatter, yeah. Can you hear all that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm so sorry to the listener at home. That's okay. Uh, yeah. You don't usually uh, get this much. Interesting. Very interesting. I I I just want to say, as a DP and especially a, a camera assistant, I have to give major kudos to the first day season. This movie, mm. like, there are a lot of, uh, and Tarantino does a lot of like single shot you know, sequences where it's either a big steady cam shot. It's not not necessarily, but there's a lot of characters moving in and out, in and out. And there's there's a point and I can't remember what it is, but like there's characters crisscrossing in the frame and the folk the focus pose really making decisions on what the focus of the scene is. And it and they do it so seamlessly. Not to mention there's actually a specific like steady cam AC for this. It's a mm. steady cam AC. Um and this guy actually made a career out of it. I was looking on his page and he made a career out of specifically steady cam first AC. Is that just like being a really good AC? I guess. It's like I just think about the differences and yeah. it's like a specialized steady cam AC just means you're really good at it. Yeah. I mean, I guess steady cam is more uh you know, affluent in the industry Maybe these days. Maybe you're moving with the steady cam cuz some AC ops have, well, not back in the 90s you wouldn't though cuz everything would be like there wouldn't be any wireless. Yeah, there would be no wireless monitoring. Yeah. Jeez, you remember back in the old days? Girl, you know, I like remember the 90s. Fucking yeah. <laughs> wand no. for the focus. <laughs> I guess that's why there would be a specialized steady cam AC. Yeah. Because if you don't have like your own monitor wirelessly, then well, there would be a particular job specifically just to like move and yeah. pull at the same time. To on- honestly, for steady cam though, you would not be, your hands would not be on the camera for a first AC. So I think it probably would be monitoring, but you would have someone wrangling a cable behind the steady cam operator at all times. Two way monitor. How would you change the focus though? Wirelessly. In the 90s? Mm hmm. Did they have that? Maybe. Back Maybe. Then? No, I'm double backing on that. 
I'm not entirely sure. How did they pull focus in the 90s? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Don't ask me. Don't at me. <laughs> I'll ask my coworkers. Maybe yeah. none of this is important at all, but I just... I, the whole movie was sharp as hell. So. Yes, the, the, they did a pretty astonishing I job. agree that there are very particular focus choices yeah. being made. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we like having people like uh, you who have different perspectives on this stuff on our show. Yeah. Who understand, like when Stuart was able to talk about sound in our blowout episode. <laughs> um, we like having someone who actually knows what cameras are. Because uh, when we look at it, we're like, look pretty. <laughs> <laughs> the light's good. <laughs> I, will light. say, I will say, I think with Robert Richardson and, and Tarantino, that is a golden combination yeah. there. I'm not, I'm not as much of a fan of the work in this one in mm. terms of lighting. In terms of lighting. And I think shot structure is purely out of Tarantino mm. in this movie. But Just trivial question. And I know we're, we're at two hours and 15 minutes right now. <laughs> yeah. Your opinion, what's the golden Quentin Tarantino, Rob Richardson standard that they've achieved so far? Um, like what movies they're yeah. best in the combination of? Damn. It's really getting loud out there. It is. <laughs> um, Shut I the l- fuck up. We're recording a podcast. <laughs> hey, Jack, can you go handle that? Yeah, give me a second. <laughs> uh, honestly, I I adore Inglorious Bastards, but mm-hmm. I think Django Unchained. Django Unchained is like a full package to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Especially in terms of like technical prowess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jam Chain's a very impressive movie. Yeah. You know what else was a very impressive movie and how it did at the box office? Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah? Pulp Fiction was the first indie movie to gross over $100 million. Holy crap. Um, it cost $8 million, so it made over 10 times its budget. Um, actually, over 12 or 13 times its budget. And uh, this... <laughs> There's nothing we can really do about the chatter. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll, for the next episode, we'll adjust position. Yeah. Um, but um, the big strategy this movie pulled, um, and the big reason that it was able to be such a major success, is that um, it was what was called the Iron Curtain Method. Of, um, it's a Harvey Weinstein patented thing. Like, yeah. fuck that guy. Um, but basically, they only had one screening of this movie um, for like four months prior to when it came out. So no one was able to see it except for the people who were in that room who said it was amazing. And so it just built, like, it snowballed this anticipation for it that no one else was allowed to see it except for those people who kept talking about it. Hmm. Led to it having a pretty major, um, uh, I don't have its opening weekend right now, but it made $213 million worldwide. $100 million, uh, domestically. Wow. Um, so, which is, like, in a, <laughs> it made over 10 times its budget um, just in America alone. It was the 10th biggest film of 1994. Um, even though it played on less screens than the top 20. So it was very much a word-of-mouth hit. Everyone was going to see Pulp Fiction. Uh, I was interested. It really changed the game in terms of how indie movies are marketed and uh, presented. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. It was nominated for seven Oscars and one Best Screenplay. Oh, only uh, one. Yeah, including one for our boy John Travolta. For lead actor. Yep, for lead actor so, in a major motion picture. And this would be his second nomination. Yes, his first yeah. for Saturday Night Fever. And after he gets nominated for this, after... Wait, are you telling me Sam Jackson was not nominated? He was nominated, he was nominated he but he didn't win. Nominated, but they did not win. Which for I think... For lead actor? Supporting. Jackson, supporting. Sam Jackson got supporting actors. Travolta got lead. Uma Thurman got supporting You're going to tell actress. me that when you watch this movie, John Travolta's history aside, same with Sam Jackson's history aside, you're going to tell me that Jules... Is a supporting character to Vincent Vega? Sure, there was some contention about this. <laughs> there had to have been. Mm-hmm. I I think like 
of all the deserving performances of accolades, Sam Jackson has more than Travolta in this movie. In my Way opinion. more. Sam Jackson was notably upset that he was actually beaten in the Oscars this year by Martin Landau and Ed Wood, uh, which I think is an astonishing performance. And I think Martin Landau deserved that nom- deserved that award. Um, however, I think Sam Jackson, like his real award for this movie was redef- was like the icon status this character has taken on in the culture. Yeah. Fair and still, held, still holds right. to this day. I mean, an Oscar here and there would be pretty nice. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. It's been his only nomination. No. Sam Jackson was only ever nominated for Pulp Fiction. Wait, I, I have to reflect. I have to see <laughs> back into my... Did, yeah. I have to see back into my... Oh, I don't like Sam Jackson, so... And this is also Travolta's last nomination. He does not get nominated again. Mm. Right. But what he does hey, get... Hey, he's still alive. Yeah. What are you, Who try, knows? What are you pa- trying to Paradise pull? City next uh, next spring. Maybe <laughs> um, but off his nomination did, from this. Did he get nominated for an Emmy for um, American Crime Story, yes. which we're not covering? He did. We're not covering American <laughs> Crime Story. We're not covering. But he has we're been, not covering Welcome Back, Cotter either. <laughs> fuck you um, if you think we will. <laughs> um, and uh, so he has. He, he did get some more accolade notices yeah. after this. Not much, but. It, it came around again. Yeah. But what he does get off of this movie, along with that nomination, is a career revival because people are now like, oh, John Travolta's still good. Yeah. And after this, he gets offered so many movies, many of which we will be covering, but there's plenty that he couldn't do because his offers were just really going up. Yeah. This was a major career redemption, and it launches him instantly into A-list status, which isn't bad for a movie that he only got paid $20,000 a week for. Yeah. Um, yep. But uh, yeah, uh, someone described this movie as resurrecting John Travolta and film noir because uh, there's a lot of copycat movies of this that come out in the years following. I guess it is a little film noir. Um, Boondock Saints is uh, very much just like a ripoff of this movie. Um, oh. A lo- and the in- and people start paying it more attention to indies after this. Yeah. Which kind of leads are to where we we're so at. thankful for that. <laughs> which kind of leads to where we are nowadays where indies are like $40 million movies. Yeah. Because after this, everyone's like, ooh. I got to be in an indie movie. A lot of big actors. Uh, and that yeah. just leads to indie movies becoming big actor movies instead of indie movies. Yeah. Just just this morning I saw a headline that said, uh, indie movies, French Dispatch, and uh, Last Night in Soho releasing on the same day this October. And it's like, Whoa. I'm looking forward to both those movies. But Wes Anderson and Edgar Wright are not directing indie movies. Yeah. <laughs> right. Those are not I mean, indie, indie in, in the sense of... You know, not a Disney film, mm. not a Marvel film, not a... Like, it's a different... It's taken on a different definition. Well, what used to be called the mid-budget movie is now called the indie movie. Right. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is a deeply sad state that we're in. This it movie is. also caused a lot of controversy. Um, presidential candidate Bob Dole in 1996, <laughs> uh, who's running for Republican, uh, you know, the... Uh, Republican candidate would end up becoming it, running against Bill Clinton. Uh, but he consistently attacked this movie as, a, as propagating a culture of gratuitous violence and depravity. Amen. <laughs> uh, also of promoting the romance of heroin, uh, which I think this movie shows heroin in a very bad light. Yeah. Frankly, scary. <laughs> yes. Uh, this movie made me very much not want to do heroin. Maybe at least want to try it. <laughs> Maybe it made me want to try it just once. Just don't snort it. Just don't snort it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Don't or else like you will up. have a uh, Eric Stoltz stabbing you in the chest. I, I would love Eric Stoltz stabbing me in the chest. <laughs> Eric Stoltz stabbing. Hey, me. hey, he can, John he can, Travolta stabbed yeah. me. He can stab me any day of the week. He He's the one who Ooh. brought her into the situation. He's Travolta stabbed me, Danny. He can stab me anywhere he wants. <laughs> 
Wait, Eric Stoltz or John Travolta? Either of them. Both. <laughs> at the same time. Okay. Um, but yeah, just off the heat of this movie, it launches Tarantino's career, relaunches Travolta's career, it launches Indies in Hollywood, gives Harvey and Bob Weinstein real credit in the industry. Miramax launches off after this. Every... Because at this point, uh, a major studio like Disney owning an indie company like Miramax was kind of a fluke. It wasn't something that happened a lot. Off of this, every major studio is like, I need to buy an indie company. Yeah. That's you got like Fox Searchlight and I can't think of what the other company's specific brandings are, but a lot of them get indie brands. And it's kind of what relaunches cinema in the the mid-90s after kind of a period of ossification. Because it was it was very uh, compute like company driven, very like distributor driven. Mm-hmm. It kind of redistributes power back to like filmmakers in some respects, and then eventually we get back to where it's company driven nowadays again. But for that little period, it led to the period where guys like you know Tarantino and David Fincher and the Coen Brothers and all of them start popping off in the industry. Yeah, yeah. and so this movie real heralded a heralded a change in the industry. Our boy. Our John boy John Travolta, he helped make it happen. You know, he has a redemption <laughs> after we've watched like 10 non-existent movies in a row. Right. <laughs> after all those really shitty 80 movies. We, we went through Boris and Natasha so that something like this could <sighs> really reinvigorate the show, reinvigorate his career. Yeah. Yeah, I have a feeling a lot of people gravitate to this podcast specifically to this episode given its star status of a movie. Yes, this is a major movie um, and hopefully people enjoyed listening to us talk about it. There have been a lot of podcast episodes on Pulp Fiction, yeah. but we'll see. But you we'll know, see. there <laughs> haven't been a lot of podcast episodes on the movie we're covering next week. Oh, no. That's right, folks. Oh, no. Before I say it, does anyone have any last thoughts on Pulp Fiction or anything to say? Um, it's a good movie. Yeah. Um, I think there's no shame in saying that it's memorable and it has mm-hmm. and will continue to stand the test of time as just, you know, being very creative yeah. in its new you know, yeah. enlightened decisions and choices. This is a great movie. Um, I think it's been very sh- like warped in culture. Uh, a lot of people have used this for, uh, to validate bad, bad opinions and bad behavior. Mm-hmm. I think it's very much. Are you talking about film critics? Like film bros and whatnot. Film bros. Yeah. Like really mm-hmm. gravitate to this in a negative light. I think it kind of fits into the same spot as like, you know, Heath Ledger's Joker, or Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, or Jared Leto's Joker, or hell, Jack Nicholson's Joker. Just say my name. Jack, stop. Um, I think it's because they touch on Tarantino and then they go to like James Cameron or Christopher Nolan and it's just a string of white yeah. men directors mm-hmm. uh i don't want to say tarantino necessarily like erased people of color in the industry but, but um, the, these movies that um on their own are just very good and things that are very good like i said the jokers um people kind of warp them into their own political opinions or mythological points. status yeah, mythological status and it's important to kind of cut that bullshit away and evaluate these things for what they are. Yeah. Which is a very good movie. Yeah. That I had a great time watching. Yeah, again. just 100% fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's Becca, do you have any last thoughts on Pulp Fiction? Um, maybe this was your first time watching it. I wasn't sure if you had any overarching thoughts. No. I mean, besides that, it's insanely fun. Sam Jackson is good. <laughs> good. He's good. And I will reside in back into my uh hatred for sam jackson <laughs> when this podcast is over sam jackson's great in every movie um <laughs> never been bad okay 
<laughs> Watch your profanity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just glad I don't have to be here next week. So. Mm. Yeah, that oh, is uh, next yeah. week we'll be covering. Because, you know, after this, Trolls clearly doesn't make any bad decisions. He never <laughs> makes a mixed step, and I'm sure it's only hits from here on out. Uh, anyway, next week we're covering White Man's Burden. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, thank you all. Thank you, thank you all for listening. Uh, make sure to tune in for Close that episode, episode next week. Close out the make episode. Make sure to tune in next week for that. Um, also, please make sure to rate, review, subscribe if you enjoyed this episode on whatever platform you're listening to. It really helps us out. It's really important. Um, we're asking you guys, whether it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or YouTube, hit us with a like, subscribe, comment. They mean a lot, and we appreciate them. Also, you can find us at TravoltingPod on Twitter or Instagram for updates and fun stuff. You can pop into our Reddit at r slash Travolting. Email any comments or questions to TravoltingPodcast at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter at Jeff W. Sweeney. Find me on Instagram at StuartElmore95. Stuart is like breaking, knowing that he has to talk about white men's burns. Did you want to plug yourself in any way? Oh, uh, you can find me on Instagram at, at Becca Lynn Artist. This is true. Yeah. Find um, some of my photography, some of my film work. Yeah. Special thanks to Rebecca Johnson for our graphic design. I can thank you in person this time. Uh, and Michael Van Bodegum Smith for our theme music, the, the new, new version of which is taking you out right now. We love it, Michael. We yeah. love it. Uh, Michael will also be joining us on the show soon. Oh, uh, wink, wink, wink. Uh, have a great week, folks. See you soon. Bye.